0: Mr. Chair, the room is ready.
1: Thank you very much. Luke Sinclair, Chair of the Planning Commission. Um, Welcome, everyone, to the August 23rd, 2021 meeting of the Lawrence Douglas County Metropolitan Planning Commission. Um, I'm going to turn it over to uh, Becky Pepper, who will give the uh, rules of the Zoom call.
2: Thank you very much. Good evening. My name is Becky Pepper, Planning Manager. Joining me here in the City Commission room is Jeff Crick, Planning and Development Services Director Tonight, we'll be work alongside the chair who is on remote video to facilitate the meeting proceedings. Currently, we have everyone muted so that we can talk through the general ground rules for tonight's meeting. This meeting is being recorded and broadcast live on the city's YouTube channel. During the meeting, please mute yourself by clicking on the microphone icon found in the lower left-hand corner of the Zoom menu next to the video icon. When you're muted, a red line will appear over the icon. This will make it easier for everyone to hear the meeting. Just remember to unmute and if and when you want to speak. You can also turn your video camera on or off by clicking the video icon in the menu. For the purposes of this public meeting, please keep your video on for the duration. If you're participating by phone, you can enter star six to mute and unmute your phone. Somewhere on the Zoom screen, you will see a choice to toggle between speaker and gallery view. Speaker view shows the active speaker, gallery view tiles, all of the meeting participants. Commissioners, you must state your name and title each time you speak. Members of city staff must also state their name and title each time they speak. And I would ask that the applicants and members of the public identify themselves each time before they speak to ensure that everyone is able to follow along. When public comment is sought on an item, individuals participating via Zoom should use the raise your hand feature. For Windows and Mac users, you can access this feature through the participants button at the bottom of your screen. Android and iPhone users can access this feature through the more button located on the bottom right corner of their screen. And for those calling in by phone, you may dial star nine. Individuals will be called upon by name in the order they appear on the meeting host screen. When you're called on, please unmute your listening device and state your name before speaking. The chair will then call for in-person public comment for those who are physically present. Staff will direct you to the podium to speak while following social distancing and safety protocols. The regular three minute time limit will apply. All motions will need to be stated clearly. After a motion is made and seconded, staff will call on each commissioner individually to provide their vote. Staff will then to need to announce whether the motion carried and the count of the vote. I again, want to remind everyone to please mute yourself when you're not speaking. And now I'll turn the meeting over to the
3: chair.
1: Thank you, Becky. Luke Sinclair, chair. Uh, sorry, everybody, my daughter made a entrance there. Uh, Luke Sinclair, chair, uh, we have no general business tonight. So the first thing we need to um, do is uh, receive an amend or approve the minutes from the planning commission meeting um, on July 26th and 28th of 2021 and question I guess point of order before we do that for uh, Jeff for Becky I was not at the July 26th meeting it, do we need to have two votes with me abstaining from one of them and anyone else that missed any of those or just notes that
0: Jeff Craig, Planning and Development Services. In the case of that where someone would like to abstain from a vote, we would ask that you take a motion for the first meeting and then a motion for the second meeting to allow for that abstention
4: to occur.
1: Okay. Thank you, Luke Sinclair, uh, Chair. So in that case, um could we uh I guess are there any are there any comments or changes to the minutes for the July 26, 2021 meeting? Or motions to approve.
5: Move that we approve.
1: Luke Sinclair Chair. Thank you, Commissioner Rexroad. Do we have a second? Uh, Commissioner Ashworth seconded. Uh, Jeff, could you take a roll?
0: Certainly. Jeff Craig, Planning and Development Services. Commissioner Ashworth? Yes. Commissioner Butler? Yes. Commissioner Carpenter? Yes. Commissioner Payton?
6: Sorry, wrong button. Epstein, um, that wasn't present.
0: Commissioner rexford Yes. Commissioner Shanklin. Yes. Yeah. Commissioner Sinclair. I'm abstaining. Commissioner Thomas. Yes. Commissioner
7: Willie.
8: Abstain.
0: Motion passes six to zero with three abstentions.
1: Uh, then for the, uh, July 28th, 2021 meeting, um, does anybody have any comments or revisions for those minutes or motions to approve?
9: Commissioner Ashworth. I move to approve the July 28th minutes.
1: Luke Sinclair chair. Thank you, commissioner Ashworth Uh, motion to approve those minutes. Does anybody want to second that? Uh, seconded by commissioner rexroad by uh, motion of the hand jeff could you read the role on that one
0: jeff craig Planning and development services director commissioner ashworth yes commissioner butler yes commissioner carpenter yes commissioner payton abstain commissioner Rexroad. yes commissioner shanklin yeah commissioner sinclair yes Commissioner Thomas? Yes. Commissioner Willie. Abstain. Motion passes seven to zero with two abstentions.
1: Thank you very much, Luke Sinclair Chair. Um, then that takes us to the next uh, part of our agenda, committee reports. Are there any reports um, that any commissioners want to make for committees uh, that have met over the past month? I'm not seeing anybody raise a hand. So we'll move on um, to communications. Um, Are there any written communications from the public um, that we need to receive that aren't already in the packet?
0: Jeff Craig, Planning and Development Services, all communications were in your packet this evening.
1: Are there any written communications from staff, planning commissioners or other commissioners to receive?
0: Jeff Craig, Planning and Development Services, none this
1: evening. Um, are there any written actions of any waiver request determinations made by the city engineer that we need to receive?
0: Jeff Craig, Planning and Development Services, none this evening.
1: Um, Luke Sinclair, Chair, sorry. Are there any commissioners that need to disclose any ex parte communications? Commissioner Ashworth?
3: Yes, Commissioner Ashworth, I have an ex parte communication to report. I had a conversation with Dorothy Barnett of the Clement Energy Project. Um, It was a general conversation about solar farms, one of the topics uh, tonight. Uh, The topics that we discussed included decommissioning, the size of solar farms, a definition of a solar farm, um, and the Sedgwick County regulations. If there are more items that come up as we discuss this that um, uh, Ms. Barnett and I talked about, I will bring them up as they come into our discussion.
1: Thank you, Commissioner Ashworth, Luke Sinclair Chair. Any other um, disclosures of ex parte? Uh, Commissioner Willie?
8: Karen Willie, Planning Commissioner. I had quite a few conversations uh, since this is a legislative item. I'm not sure if how much detail you, you want me to disclose. Um, I would say I am sit on the board of the Kansas Rural Center, which advocates for um, sustainable farming and sustainable energy practices. Uh, so there was a lot of discussion amongst that board about what kind of, Uh, Comments to make. And I think Jack Pistora, who is our um, acting executive director, is here to speak tonight. Um, I also had a conversation with Eileen Horn, um, and I think uh, Dorothy Barnett will speak probably to many of those points. And I had a site visit um, this morning at the Baldwin City Solar Farm with members of the Evergy team and the members of the Baldwin City Public Works. And for that, I'm happy to share any of those experiences as they come up and are relevant in our conversation.
1: Thank you, Commissioner Willie. Luke Sinclair, Chair. Um, Commissioner Carpenter, I saw your hand up.
10: I had a discussion of a general nature with Michael Allman about solar power and the inter- and, uh, interplay between solar farms and agriculture. I also, had a similar conversation with that. <clears> Holcomb. <throat>
1: Thank you, Commissioner Carpenter, Luke Sinclair Chair. Any other disclosures of ex parte communications? Not seeing any. Um, Are there any uh, commissioners that need to abstain from any specific agenda items tonight? Good. There's only one. So I'm glad to hear that. Uh, Now then is the part of the meeting where um we entertain general public comments um from members of the public uh this is a time to bring items before us that are not on our regular agenda so if anybody here at the meeting tonight on the zoom call or in person is here to talk about um the any of the items on the agenda please hold your comments till then you'll have an opportunity to talk Um, if you do have something besides that to say you can Um, either raise your hand on the Zoom call or step to the podium in the chambers and you you have three minutes.
2: This is Becky Pepper, planning manager. I do not see anybody uh, here in um, the city, city commission room for general comment, nor do I see any raised hands on Zoom.
1: Thank you, Becky. Luke Sinclair, chair. Uh, With that, then, we'll turn to our regular agenda. Um, The first item, and I think the only item on our regular agenda is to consider approving a text amendment, TA-2100173, to add standards for commercial utility scale solar energy conversion systems to the zoning regulations for unincorporated Douglas County. Um, And for this, I believe we have uh, Mary Miller with staff to do a presentation.
11: Good evening, commissioners. Mary Mellor, city county planner. And I'm going to share my screen real quick here. I think. Um, This text amendment was before you in June and um, you considered it and took public comment. And then you returned it to staff with direction to consider the public comments and the comments made at the commission meeting and return it to you with changes that were marked up in the draft language. And so in the agenda packet, there is a table showing all the comments with staff's discussion and whether or not we accepted them, accepted them partially or did not accept them. And there is a marked up draft version. In that version, everything in red, are changes were made based on public comment. Everything in green, those are staff changes. Uh, made after additional review or um, sometimes after additional changes needed to be made based on um, comments from the public. So I'll divide this into three sections. I'll go through the Planning Commission comments uh, that were made at the meeting, and then I'll do the public comments that were made at the June meeting and discuss the changes that were made uh, on the major ones. Some were just uh, very minor as you'll note in the report, Uh, but the major changes um, discuss the ones that were made And we have uh, been talking with several firms that are interested in solar energy. And so um, I discussed some of the changes with them. And at the end, I'll be able to tell you some that they would still like to see that we didn't make. And then I'll finally go through comments that we received today. So um, as far as the June meeting, one of the comments made was that the uh, commissioner would be comfortable with uh, reducing setbacks and buffering requirements if, if the property be treated more like a soil bank. And I believe with the planting requirements that we've got and the soil testing that um, we could consider it pretty adequate to be a soil bank. And so we have reduced the setbacks and buffering. And I'll discuss that a little bit more later. Um, This was also based partly on public comments. Uh, Some comments received from the firms indicated that uh, excessive setbacks and wide buffering would require them to expand and use more property, which kind of a solar farm sprawl. And so we wanna make sure we were using adequate setbacks and buffering, but not more than really is required. Uh, The commission asked for information on soil contamination. And so we provided two links uh, to reports that we use. One of the firms we've been working with indicated that the second um, report, solar farming, not a good use of agricultural land, uh, might not be a reputable source. uh, And they may have more information on that, these are just things we found through our online research. Uh, one commission asked if it would be appropriate to have different levels of fencing. And um, a public comment was raised that um, solar energy conversion systems, are very important part of that is energy storage. And so uh, as we added battery storage, we did add different levels of fencing. There's one type of fencing for the solar array, but then a different, more stringent fencing for the battery storage. Um, is minimum area needed? Uh, there is no minimum area requirement. Um, actually, in the definitions, um, we have three definitions. One is just what is a solar energy conversion system. And If you look in the draft language, you'll see that was revised because we had erroneously placed a lot of information in there that really only applied to the commercial scale, distribution lines and storage equipment. So, that was revised. Um, in the orig- The first definition, we're just trying to define what is a solar energy conversion system or a solar panel, technically. And then we have the two different types. We have small scale, which is really just personal or accessory. And um, based on some of the comments, it looks like maybe there's some confusion there. Maybe that should be revised to personal accessories and not small scale. And, and then the... Um, the one that would require the conditional use permit is the commercial or utility scale. And so anything that's not personal or accessory would require a conditional use permit. And so we did not set a minimum area. If it's five acres and it's not being used for personal purposes, then it would require a CUP. Um, We were asked, how is the 1,000 acres arrived at for the maximum? And um, we were trying to balance the need for renewable energy and then our need to maintain agricultural inventory. And so 1,000 acres seemed reasonable to us. We did uh, make some revisions based on public comments. Uh, There was questions of how are we measuring the 1,000 acres? And uh, we would just be measuring what's under the solar array, not the area within the fences and not the area that's leased. That way we're not penalizing them if they're setting aside stream corridors or uh, woodlands You know, those areas that are not used for solar array would not be counted in the maximum. And we also added information in that um, section that noted that Board of County Commissioners could vote to exceed that limit if they felt it was appropriate and met the intent of the code. And so I think we built some flexibility into that, Um, which brings us to the next question. We were asked, is it possible to build flexibility into the standards, especially to accommodate new technology? We added a provision near the end called modifications, which notes that every standard in this section can be modified by the Board of County Commissioners if they find that it's appropriate. And this is something we intend to add to uh, all the conditional use permits when we do our update to the zoning regulations. Um, Since it's a conditional use, each one is different and the commission could change or alter the standards, but they're the basic guides. Um, So uh, we did build that flexibility in. If technology changes and it's more significant, we would have to do a text amendment, I believe, to achieve any more flexibility. And then um, where we just basically in our draft language said, trees would not be removed and they'd be protected. And there was asked as the definition. There is a definition in the zoning regulations and we should have used the term stands of mature trees because that's what we use throughout the zoning regulations. And that's defined, it's an environmentally sensitive land. And so they would be under the same protection standards as they are in the bi- environmentally sensitive lands. So we did clarify that in our language. So some of the changes for public comments, as I mentioned in the definitions, we did revise them to include battery storage. And then we made the change to um, clarify that the not all solar energy conversion systems have distribution lines and a pertinent equipment that is only when they're larger scaled. Uh, The height limitation, we had set the limitation at 15 feet. One public um, commenter noted that if you were going to have, and I always get this name wrong, I think it's agriboltaic, or if you're gonna have a mixture of agriculture and and photovoltaic, uses they need to be taller than 15 feet and they showed examples of that where people could just farm under the solar panels so we did revise the height limitation to say no higher than 15 feet unless it's going to be an agrivoltaic process where farming will occur under it and then it could be exceeded on um, the size limitation um, as i noted we did clarify that, that we're only looking at what's under the solar array and it can be modified. Um, The planning commission can make a recommendation on the modification, and the Board of County Commissioners would be the ones that would decide if a request to modify that would be approved or not. Um, Topsoil removal, uh, we had noted that that should not occur. However, um, we got comments that sometimes you do have to move the topsoil in order to install the equipment, and then also for reclamation. So we revised that to note that topsoil removal should be minimized Um, but that it could occur with installation and reclamation, but in no cases should topsoil be removed from the property. And then we did receive comments on the setbacks uh, that uh, they would like to see the setbacks revised. Um, What we had previously proposed was uh, 100 feet from the required right-of-way. And in the unincorporated portion of the county, most roads don't have the required amount of -of right-of-way dedicated. So we always have to look at how much right-of-way should they have, not how much do they have, but how much should they have, and then we measure the setback from that. So we had previously proposed 100 feet from all rights-of-way and 50 feet from other property lines that aren't adjacent to roads and 500 feet from any residents. And we revised that to note that they should comply with the setbacks for the zoning district. And it could be as close as 100 feet from any residents. Uh, we added a provision that would uh, change the setbacks. So there's no setback required if you're adjacent to a participating property. And um, if a residence on a participating pro- property waives the uh, setback requirement, that could also not have a setback. Um, anytime a setback is waived for a participating property, a property that's included in the project, they would need to provide a waiver. And so a, that way we can keep it in the file for the CDP. So we'll have it for future reference. And um, just to clarify, if these are, would be permitted in the Ag 1 District, and the setbacks in the Ag 1 District are based on the classification of the road next to your property. So if it's on a principal arterial, which would be a highway or a county route, the setback is 150 feet from the required right-of-way. And so that would be greater, it's a greater setback than we had previously proposed. If you're on a minor arterial or major collector, it would be 100 feet. So that would be the same, But on minor collectors, which would be 75 and locals, the setback is 50 feet. Those would both be a reduction in setback. And then we did recommend going 30 feet from this rear and the side, because that's what any other structure in that district is allowed to do. So changes uh, that we made for other changes. Um, They asked about a change to signage. We had recommended signage along the perimeter fencing at one per 100 feet. And we had based that on our work with quarries. But quarries are typically fenced with barbed wire and the signage is no trespassing just to keep people out. The solar arrays and the solar farm will have security fencing. So we agreed that less signage would probably be appropriate. It's more of a warning signage. So um, it has to have the appropriate language, but they could be as far apart as 500 feet. And then there's a section about the modifications to note that the Board of County Commissioners can approve a modification from these requirements. And then there was a... um, Standard added about building permits. We don't usually include building permits in the conditional use permit language, but um, the codes department asked for this as they're not really equipped to inspect and review these kind of projects. So the language they asked us to add is: the applicant shall contract with a county-approved special inspector and/or plan reviewer for plan review and all required construction inspections at the operator's expense. And so that was added primarily for the applicant's information, kind of a heads up, and just to get that on the books. So um, those were the changes to the standards. We went through and there are some changes to the uh, things that are required with the applications. Um, Under the existing conditions, we ask for all roads to be shown within 100 feet of the property. Uh, That was revised to just showing us the access drives and the points of ingress and egress on the site. And then of course the access drives through the site. And in this section called supplemental information, um, item number seven, uh, we were requiring an interconnection agreement with the energy provider to be provided to us with the application. Uh, But the firms informed us that that's usually never provided until they actually have an approved CUP and then they're able to get their agreement with the um, energy provider. So this uh, is still required, but the timing um, has been moved back so that it's following the approval of a conditional use permit. And once a conditional use permit is approved by the county commission, a resolution is published, um, but there are still conditions that have to be met. And this would be one of those conditions. And so the plans are held in the planning office until the conditions are met. And then when all the conditions have been met, the plans are released to zoning and codes. um, And there they get their conditional use permit and they get their building permits. So it would still be required before they were able to get building permits. Um, on the landscape plan, we did revise about the uh, trees, just to note that stands and mature trees must comply with the environmental protection standards. And in the soil sampling plan, we had noted that if a panel was broken, it needed to be removed or testing would be required. And um, the firms who were noted that it's, a lot of times panels could be chipped or scratched and it actually doesn't create an issue. So we added the language, if it's damaged to the point that it poses an environmental threat due to contamination And is it removed within 30 days? Then a soil test is required. And the Sierra Club contacted us and asked us, how would we monitor this? And we passed that along to the firm we were working with, one of the firms. And they said they monitor all their panels remotely. Um, They 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 can keep an eye on them uh, through their computers. And so they would know if a panel had damage. So um, we asked them if there's a way that zoning and codes could be linked in with that so that they would also know, or they could be informed. We don't have that worked out yet. We just had our discussion the other day. Um, So this is probably a uh, standard that would need a little bit more information as to just how would zoning and codes know if a panel had been damaged. And then the bond of item 13 and supplemental information, uh, we removed the fixed amount. We were recommending $40,000 an acre or the third estimate, third-party estimate. And if we removed that, it would just be based on the third-party estimate. Um, And that would be a third party that's selected by the county commission uh, but paid for by the applicant. So the changes staff made, if you look through there, you'll see in green, we did make some changes to the fencing, primarily to battery storage. We added the battery storage section. Um, We added a section on noise. That's one of the things when you have solar uh, farms, the row of arrays at the end, there's an inverter and it has a hum. And it's not extremely loud, but it's just a steady hum. And if you're nearby, if there's a residence nearby, that could be obnoxious. So we are recommending that the noise be no more than 60 decibels at the source. And the the firms that we've been working with asked if that could be measured at the property line rather than at the source, You know, It could be quite a ways from the property line, depending there may be trees between it and the property line. And so I think measuring at the property line may be reasonable, but we may want to change that noise level. If we change it to property line, we may want to change the decibel level. Uh, The next two items were added by the county engineer. One was a stormwater plan. Uh, They wanted to have a drainage plan so that they could know if they needed to have detention on site. And also they revised the transportation plan language that we had, uh, made it much more concise. And um, then also the emergency plan, um, there were some changes to that, just um, beefing that up. And we primarily based that on other communities. We wanted to make sure we had a good emergency plan. One of the things that the, um, the firms that we're working with asked about is, could they submit preliminary plans when they're just submitting the application for the conditional use permit? Because they don't know if they have a use approval yet rather than spending all the money on engineering plans. And um, that's technically how we work, but we don't actually spell it out in the code. But I think we could add a provision noting that with the application, we want preliminary plans. And if you get preliminary approval, if it goes to the county commission and they note that they feel favorable to the project, uh, but they want the plans, and at that point you would need to provide complete plans. And so then it would go back to the county commission with the full plans after the county engineer reviewed them, That way it's still in the public process, but they do have their preliminary assurance before they spend the money on the engineered plans. So that seems reasonable. And that's a change that we could make. We just discussed that a day or two ago, so we we didn't put those changes in the proposed regulations. So, um, at the meeting we had the other day, uh, these are the items that I took in my notes were still outstanding. They may have some others. Uh, They did not want the area limitation of 1,000 acres. They would rather have that be decided on a case-by-case basis. Uh, With the battery storage, they wanted compliance with national standards rather than us establishing standards. I think for a CUP, we might want some simple standards that are in in alignment with national standards, and we could always say, you know, or as the national standards, but I think it's just helpful to have some of the more important ones written out so that we don't have to refer to the national standards every time we look at them. Uh, they asked us to replace fire suppression with another term, such as prevention or management, and I don't um, I don't understand. Maybe it's the electrical nature of the use and suppression of fire. Um, I don't see an issue with using prevention or management and changing the terminology. Uh, we'd be happy to do that. And then also, they wanted us to measure noise at the property line rather than at the source, and I think that would be appropriate as long as we reviewed and um, maybe reevaluated what that decibel level would be. Um, and then the clarification that preliminary studies are required with the application; um, more complete studies, engineered studies, would be required once they have the preliminary approval, and that way the county commission still reviews it and they review it. They make their decision based on those complete studies. And we have a condition that says anything underground must be removed, everything underground. And I know we were thinking primarily of footings and piers and um, they noted that they often bury cables more than 36 inches underground and they would like those to be able to remain. And uh, we got this comment too recently, I think it's something we should look into to see if anyone would have a concern with those remaining underground. Um, We could make an exception if that seems reasonable. And then they asked that the setback from property lines, rather than being 30 feet, be reduced to 10 feet. So uh, some of the new public comments we received just this morning, uh, we did receive pictures of the Baldwin City solar farm. I think Karen really shared those with us. Those are pages 90 to 93. Uh, Some of the comments were to preserve farmland, prime farmland, allow no solar farms on prime farmland. Um, One person said, if the land, if we determine the land after a solar farm is on it can be returned to agricultural use successfully when it's decommissioned, uh, that we should not place unnecessary restrictions such as a 1,000 acre maximum. Uh, One comment said that we should set standards to ensure the land is not permanently scarred but remains viable for agriculture. And I think that's one of our overriding goals of the standards. So hopefully we do achieve that. Uh, There was a report regarding the impact of climate change itself on agriculture, and this recommended removing the 1,000-acre cap and reducing the setbacks. Um, We had a a comment that recommended we reduce the area permitted to 500 acres, that would be the maximum, but allow an increase to 1,000 acres if property in the CRP program, conservation reserve program, is included, or if the solar arrays are used for agricultural production, if they're raised and we're just farming underneath it. And to prohibit any location on class 1 and 2 soils. Um, we had another comment to allow on farmland, but not class 1 or 2 or prime farmland, uh, but to allow it on farmland if the design enables the continuation of our production under the array. So if, it's, if the arrays are raised and we're still farming it, um, then it could be allowed on farmland as long as it's not class 1 or 2 or prime. And then to revise the definition of small scale, CSCCS, to include townships and cities. And I think that's where some confusion is coming up. The intention of having a small scale was to note they're exempt from the requirement to have a conditional use permit. And it may be more straightforward just to call them accessory slash personal um, systems. And that way it's it's not just the scale, it's actually the nature. And that would be a change that perhaps we should make just to remove the confusion. Uh, One comment suggested we set a limitation on the percent of land that could be covered with solar arrays. And um, I wasn't sure exactly. I think that would increase the area needed for the overall solar farms. I wasn't sure just how that uh, would apply. Uh, Wanted to prioritize impervious surface or old landfills and Superfund sites. And that's a good idea. We don't have much impervious surface. I don't think that we have any Superfund sites in the unincorporated portion of the county. But you know, places like that would be good places for these to go. And then recommended we set the height at no lower than 16 feet, so that all solar farms you know, would be able to have the agrivoltaic component. And so those are the new comments. I was just discussing them. To summarize them, we haven't made any changes based on them. And uh, my recommendation or staff's recommendation would be to forward the text amendment with the revised draft language to the County Commission uh, with a recommendation for approval or you could return it to us with direction for more changes if you'd like to see more changes to the language. Thank you.
1: Thank you, Mary. Luke Sinclair, Chair. Uh, We're gonna take public comment now. There's no technical applicant on this, so we won't have an applicant um, response. And public comment's gonna be limited to three minutes per person per our bylaws. Um, i think that we may staff may have received a request to extend that um this is the second time that this particular matter has come to this commission um, and we uh, i think are going to have a lot more public comment tonight and i think out of respect for everybody's time we ought to keep it um, to three minutes if there are members of the public though that are looking to um, combine their individual uh, comment periods into one presentation um, you know that's that's up to you that's it. you can do that. Um, and so with that, I guess I'll I can just go down the list of the the folks that I have um, noted being signed up and then we can cover anybody else that isn't on the list. Um, but I think the first people I have on my list are uh, Alan Anderson, John Peterson, and William Wilkins and I'm just saying that out of memory. I think the three of you presented last time uh, jointly um, and so, the first on my list, and just turn it over to you if, you if you have something for us.
12: Thank you, Mr. Chairman, members of the Commission. John Peterson with Post and LAPC. Uh, having the pleasure tonight uh, to be here on behalf of NextEra Energy Resources. As you indicated, Billy Wilkins, project director for NextEra, is with us, as well as my partner, Alan Anderson, a Douglas County resident and also the head of our energy group. And he's going to speak briefly in this uh, allowed time slot as well. Staff, Mr. Chairman, did such an excellent job uh, really <clears throat> highlighting the handful of issues that we would like some continued modifications to as the commission considers this set of regulations. Um, I, I'll touch on them very, very quickly, and then I'll turn it over to Alan for some comments. Probably the one is size is probably the most important in the list, the 1,000-acre maximum requirement. And we would merely suggest and we acknowledge and we've had such a really positive professional uh, exchange with staff in working through these regulations. Uh, we appreciate the fact that it uh, they highlighted exactly what the 1000 acre means in terms of the exact coverage of the panels and the ability to seek a waiver from the uh, county commission if we needed to exceed that 1000. I think our point is this to bring a state-of-the-art uh, solar facility to Douglas County and to the entire, uh, really, uh, MSA of uh, of this area, we will need more than 1,000 acres. Uh, we say that with the recognition that there are provisions in your regulations, which we have no argument with, that go to providing a, uh, a quality project that addresses all of the important issues of. Quality of the soils, preservation of natural features—all of those elements that are important—and we're prepared to adhere to, but those eat up acres as well. So the idea of putting a thousand acres, and then we come and ask for an expansion—it's a bit upsetting the realistic expectations of what a project would be. And we think, given the really the the path we will be required to follow and want to follow, to Address all of the related environmental issues and how the project impacts surrounding properties. We trust the judgment through these regulations, ultimately, of the Board of County Commissioners to decide on a case by case basis what is the appropriate size of the project. So, with that, is really just a restatement of what staff indicated was our position of not having a set uh, cap, uh, acreage cap on the project. Uh, setbacks you went through i will just indicate in terms of uh battery storage uh the regulations as drafted by staff i I will say sort of unilaterally just pick for instance a 500 foot setback for storage facilities i know that probably goes to the issue of safety and uh, being sure that there is proper treatment of such facilities uh 500 feet is a long way uh, we would suggest again that we have a set of what the national standards have put forth in terms of uh, citing a facility yeah, like yeah. this, for safety concerns, all the other elements that go into it. They've been tested, reviewed, and researched, and we look forward to working with staff to maybe pull a few of those out, but then have that sort of a tag on to the regulations for a conditional use permit in, in Douglas County. Uh, I know we're short on time, so I'm going to jump to the noise because that's an important one um 60 decibels is an aggressively conservative noise level and that's okay we can live with that Uh, i deal with 60 foot decibels in a lot of development projects that i've been involved in 60 decibels in the book the manual if you read it is the about is right at the level of a normal human conversation and so if my voice wasn't uh, amplified and we're in a room together that's 60 decibels 60 decibels at the property line seems like a reasonable standard that if we could maintain that it would not be disruptive to our neighbors whether they were participating or not participating in the project and finally in terms of the one point of the decommissioning plan of the option of leaving some of our wires as you know all of these panels are connected underground by a series of wires. Um, We place those by trenching the ground, taking care to preserve the topsoils, replacing the topsoils. And much like other public utilities, water, uh, sewers are allowed once it's determined that they're deep enough not to affect the reuse of the property, whether it be for commercial development or agricultural development, that they're deep enough. And they themselves do not have any contaminants Uh, that could affect groundwater or anything to that degree, they're left in place as well. And we would just suggest that instead of having to retrench, take soils out again, if they're deep enough, 36 inches, we have determined uh, anything below 36 inches, that we could go through that analysis and leave that part of the facility in place. It is not footings and foundations. We are not suggesting that those be left in place. So with that, and against the other comments by the professional staff, uh, we'll finish our comments tonight by turning it over uh, to my partner alan anderson
13: great thanks john alan anderson with pulson la also working with next Area energy resources and i'm just going to touch on, on two major goals that douglas county has stated within the comprehensive plan or the plan 2040 and the first is um, related to section four ensuring a resilient future for our food system and in know reading from that section, it's promoting the resilience of our agricultural future, which um, I think as you heard, this project would serve as a land banking and preserve the soil allow for recharging and uh, uh, agriculture into the future. Uh, but it specifically also says incentivize conservation. And just like other projects or programs that allow for soils, especially top quality soils to be preserved in conservation and enhanced for the future Conservation is an important part of that, and that shouldn't be lost and shouldn't be minimized, and that's specifically in the, in Plan 2040, but also maintaining and protecting the lands and high-quality agricultural soils for, soils for future generations. The threat to the soils of Douglas County has not been from a solar project, nor would it be, as that would conserve and, and preserve the land for future generations, but it's from other uh, uses, residential and other uh, items such as that. So as staff has stated, it's uh, this would be similar to land banking discussed future, uh, previously in the other meeting, and it would pre- prepare these soils to be enhanced and allowed for these future generations in a way that really no other use can. Um, so the second point that Douglas County has stated in Plan 2040, and that is climate change mitigation and leadership uh it we don't have to look too far than the recent ipcc report that was put out that is stated that and again if we're going to believe in climate change that we are pretty much locked into a 1.5 degrees celsius increase but if we want to prevent the real harm that comes from an additional 1.5 degrees celsius increase we must move from fossil fuel generation and usage in in the which is the greatest creator of greenhouse gas emissions, and transition to renewable energy. But the key part of that that can't be lost is it must be much more renewable energy than we've done to date and a much faster pace. Those things are so critical to the the climate change mitigation that we can't minimize how important it is to do that. So from a leadership standpoint, if Douglas County is going to place itself in a position of climate change leadership, it can't have anything resembling this thousand-acre uh, cap because I can tell you the way that will be received. First of all, I guarantee that we are not doing things to the scale or the pace that are necessary for climate change mitigation. But It'll also be used, and I can tell you from working on other projects, it'll be used by other places to say, "Well, gosh, if Douglas County says they're so, uh, you know, pro renewables and pro, you know, GHG reduction, look what they did." And that'll be used. So we will not only not be a leader for positive in climate change, but we would in fact, that the, the reputational damage to Douglas County as a climate change mitigation leader would be significant. We would be the most restrictive solar ordinance in the state by a large margin. And I don't think we want to minimize that impact. And I know Dr. Ruman has uh, prepared a report that uh, it gets into this from a much more scientific basis, but uh, he he states that if we have that kind of cap on on uh, acreage, that we should probably construe it as exacerbating the climate crisis and being part of the problem rather than the solution. So I, I I can tell you this will be utilized in a negative way, and I don't want to minimize that impact. So with that uh i'll i'll end my comments we were also and i'm happy to talk about the report that was presented uh from that was uh, actually published in a chemical and fertilizer company and is not allowed to be utilized and has patently wrong facts within it uh, but i'm happy to talk about that if it's necessary and obviously between mr wilkins and mr peterson we're also uh, available for comments through, you know as as needed through the rest of the uh evening
1: Thank you, Mr. Anderson, uh, and Mr. Peterson, Luke Sinclair Chair. Um, sure, there will be questions if there was anything else you wanted to talk about. Um, the uh, I guess Daniel Ruman is the next person I have on my list. Uh, Mr. Ruman, did you have any additional comments to make?
14: Yes, thank you. Can everyone see my screen? I think so. Okay, The basic point I want to make, Alan already alluded to it, is um, just the fact that some of these setbacks and limitations in size might be easily construed as counterproductive to some of Douglas County's missions, just because of the fact that climate change is actually the, the biggest threat to agriculture and rural uh, landscapes in Douglas County. My name is Dan Ruman. I'm a professor and senior scientist at KU. Uh, and I just wanna direct everyone to the report that I submitted if you want more detail, also happy to answer questions. So the basic logic of my argument here is that these size, size limits and setbacks, which I'm happy to see that some of them are being reviewed already, <clears throat> they were seemingly proposed originally motivated by preserving agriculture and rural character of unincorporated Douglas County, which are worthy goals for sure. Uh, But actually climate change is the biggest threat to agriculture in Douglas County. And I'll give a little evidence of that in a few minutes. So the best way to preserve agriculture is probably actually to fight climate change with everything that we've got by promoting large scale renewables being one of the best ways. Douglas County also already has a climate change mitigation as a goal. So excessive size limits and excessive setbacks on solar farms are actually counterproductive to these goals. So I just want to emphasize what many people have already heard something about, and that's the extreme urgency of of climate change as a global problem, to limit consequences to less disastrous levels. By less disastrous, I mean still disastrous, just less bad than it would be if it goes above this level. We have to limit warming to 1.5 degrees Celsius, That is difficult at this point. In order to do it, the IPCC has projected in their recent sixth assessment report that we have to have global emissions over the next 10 years. That's an amazingly short period of time, given that it takes five years to build one of these solar farms, to to do the whole planning process and everything. Then we have to zero out emissions entirely by 2050. So it's quite urgent. And this is not, this is just, Still bad things about climate change will happen. This is just to avoid the worst of it. Climate change is the largest threat to agriculture in in Douglas County and to the rural character of Douglas County. And I'll give some examples from some reports here. There's a report from the EPA from 2016 called What Climate Change Means for Kansas. So it's a specific report to Kansas. And here are a few quotes from it. Changing climate is likely to increase the demand for water but make it less available soils have become drier and they're likely to continue to become drier, average rainfall during the summer is likely to decrease. These are all things that sort of manifestly are going to influence agriculture in Douglas County and uh, the uh, rural character of Douglas County. Here's another example, a recent high-profile report from researchers out of Kansas State published in Nature Communications which identified that crop yield risks will increase with warmer temperatures reducing the economic viability of farming in Kansas. And there's details on both of those in the report. Uh, Here is a set of pie charts from that paper from Nature Communications that I just mentioned, that uh, they worked out the crop loss indemnity payments by cause in Kansas over the last 10 or 20 years. You can see the red and blue here correspond to excessive precipitation and drought so about 75% of these crop loss indemnity payments were due to extreme variability in rainfall, and it's well known to scientists that variability is something that will be exacerbated by climate change. Variability in precipitation, probably most of you can already tell that that's happening by the extreme rain events that have been happening in Douglas
1: County uh, for the last few years. Luke Sinclair, Chair. Mr. Ruman, if you wouldn't mind uh, wrapping up. We're past yeah. the three minutes, so- as a group, you guys have exceeded... The nine, for sure.
14: Well, I have one more slide, which is just specific recommendations, which are to scrap or, or or greatly increase the thousand acre size limit and reduce the setbacks, which I'm already happy to see the setbacks are being reconsidered. That's all.
1: Luke Sinclair Chair, thank you, Mr. Ruman. Um, And just to reiterate, uh, before moving on to the next public commenter, we will surely have questions for, uh, commenters during the discussion section. So even if, um, even if I cut you off, I apologize. I'm not, um, not trying to be mean, uh, the next individual I have listed, um, though is Michael Allman. Michael Allman, are you, are you on the line?
15: Uh, yes, I am. This is Michael Allman. And, um, I see we have capability sharing screen.
0: Jeff Craig, Planning Development Services. Michael, you should be able to share your screen if we've got everything properly set.
15: Okay, um, I will as I need. Thank you. Uh, I'm speaking for the Sustainability Action Action Network. Um, It's a not-for-profit here in Lawrence, Kansas. NextEra and Savion are requesting lax siting criteria because they claim to already operate by high standards and need no restrictions for riparian corridors, wildlife corridors, or sensitive lands. Savion goes so far as to say they want no upper limit on size because they follow the project size needs of the regional transmission power pool. I'm sure what they say about their self-imposed limits is true. So they want you to minimize citing criteria. Trust us, they say. However, there are only two problems with that scenario. First, they're in business to make a profit, which is commendable. And like any business that adheres to a fiduciary responsibility for shareholder profit, if faced with a choice of an environmentally sound design or making a profit, which do you think they'll choose? Second, the standards you are devising will not apply to only one site or one project or one business. This amendment will be for all of Douglas County and for any future solar projects by any company. It's impossible to predict if the next company will apply rigorous standards to themselves. It's up to the Planning Commission to adopt standards that protect our farmland and food security while permitting solar electric projects. We need resilient farm soils right now that can withstand heat, drought, and flooding from climate destabilization. And we need solar electricity that will mitigate climate disruption as the previous speakers have indicated. A climate solution would be foolhardy though, if it promoted the solar aspect of that, but ignored the food production aspect. As we explained in our letter, solar and farming can partner Through agrivoltaics, food production underneath the solar arrays. By keeping land productive while adding solar arrays spaced at less than 100% density, a landowner can enjoy a return on investment up to a 60% increase. Don't be distracted by solar that prevents food production with the promise of preserving the land for the future. We need that food production now. It's also highly unlikely that in 30 years the solar arrays will be de- decommissioned. Solar efficiency has advanced to around 22% today, but prototypes are at 29.8% and even 44.5% efficient. In 30 years, next era will surely replace the old panels with new panels that double the efficiency and make double the profit going forward those arrays are not going away. The land will remain covered. In our markup text amendment, we recommend prohibiting solar on capability one and two soils, a 500 acre maximum size, but by incentivizing agrivoltaics with a size premium of 1,000 acres. And remember that in the permit process, a waiver can be applied for. Prioritizing projects on CRP land, on rooftops, on retired landfills or Superfund sites, or other places other than prime farmland. The largest-
1: Luke Sinclair Chair, Mr. Allman, I'm sorry, Uh, go ahead and finish up your thoughts, if you will.
15: Uh, Yes, I will. Uh, Can you all see that? The largest project in Nextera's portfolio is 300 megawatts and the average is 88.6 megawatts, or only 700 acres. 3,500 acre, 500 megawatt projects are are only to maximize their profit and are not preordained by the market. Kansas is a ripe plum for solar. With the rise in solar efficiencies and a precipitous drop in costs, developers will be flocking here. It's a seller's market. So don't hesitate to state your terms. Thank you.
1: and Sinclair, share. Thank you, Mr. Allman. The next uh, individual from the public I have listed is Marcy Francisco. Are you on the line, Ms. Francisco?
6: I am. Have I unmuted? Yep, I can hear you. Uh, Chairman Sinclair and members of the Planning Commission. um, First off, apologies for coming late to this discussion and my thanks for all the good work that has been done up to this point on the text amendment um, for commercial and utility scale solar energy conversion systems by the commissioners and by the staff. I um, want you to know that I am so appreciative Your work will allow our county to provide an opportunity for renewable energy that many of the residents want. Um, I'm especially pleased that accommodations were made in the amendment for both retaining the topsoil um, and for accommodating battery storage. Really with the idea of battery storage, um, we can look at shaving um, the peak. So my specific comments um, were in regard to the size. And this is 12-306-49.04d. And I see that the staff is suggesting that the 1,000-acre limit be maintained, um, but that the Board of County Commissioners may modify that condition on a case-by-case basis. So I appreciate the explanation of what's included in the 1,000-acre limit. Um, That makes me feel a little better, um, because it is just the arrays themselves. And I recognize the concern we all have to protect prime farmland in this county. However, since there can be any number of such installations, I don't see how the size of each one will limit the overall impact on agricultural land. It may make more sense for the commission um, to identify land that should not have any built structures um, at all, rather than try to set maximums for particular projects. Um, I also wanna say that the more the rules are written to be applied uniformly, the easier a job, um, or the easier we've made the job for our elected officials. Um, So I was interested to hear the earlier comments um, and suggest maybe that um, proposal of 2000 acres or something in between um, could make more sense. But again, thank you all for addressing this and thanks um, for all the good work um, that I've seen um, thus far.
1: Luke Sinclair, Chair, thank you, Ms. Francisco. The next person I have on my list is Dan Fuller. Mr. Fuller, are you on the line? I'm here.
0: Uh, Jeff Craig, Planning Development Services. Uh, Mr. Chair, the gentleman is in the room to speak on the items. Okay, thank you.
4: okay so the microphone's on okay all right um i this uh they're talking about the soils uh, you know and the stability on them the soil in this area that we're talking about this thousand acres is sibleyville soil it's highly erodible it's sandy uh it has the uh, water depth of about uh, 15 foot where the water table is right below the sandstone structure so um, it's going to be very um, hard for them to not contaminate this, this soil when they go in to do uh, herbicides, especially if they use Tordon. Tordon will go right down. It's, there's, Kansas City Power and Light was sued about 40 years ago uh, for Tordon contamination because they spread it underneath their power lines to get rid of the brush So that's something that you guys have to keep in mind. At this site where they're talking about is the Sibleyville soil, and it's highly erodible. With with these solar panels being at certain angles of the day, if you get rain, there's going to be a drip edge, just like on the side of your house. And that soil is going to erode maybe four or five inches deep, depending on the amount of rain we get. So, and it'll take a while before you put down before they get any uh, growth, vegetation growth below those panels. So it's highly erodible. The um, uh, temperature on the, around the perimeter of these solar farms, and actually, it's a solar industrial complex. It's not a solar farm. Uh, can raise the air temperature five to seven degrees around the outside perimeter. Well, you get a wind blown. If some house is within 500 foot, their temperature is going to go up. So that's going to increase their cooling bill in the summertime. Uh, Also, how's that going to do with that temperature rise on those panels? How's that going to affect our rainfall there as far as uh, is the rain going to evaporate before it hits the ground or what, subsoil moisture is in the ground is that going to evaporate also i've i've heard i haven't seen but i've heard where it can almost be a little desert around these because it does affect uh, the weather conditions around these i've also heard that uh, planes can't fly over these they have a reflective uh where they reflect back up into the atmosphere so they have to avoid it they have to kind of fly around this general area um also, this ground that we're talking about is by absentee landowners. They, they don't live here. So, so if they don't live here, they don't worry about what's happening to the neighbors around. There are three agricultural tourist locations in this general area. They raise specialty crops. How's this going to affect their business? That's something else that you guys have to consider. I think that you should slow down and check these out. Take your time. Don't vote on this right away. You have to, to investigate all these uh, problems that you know can arise from this stuff. Uh, the herbicide use is really scary because these specialty crops, if they use anything that has a bottle of Lester in it, it's going to volatilize when the temperature gets up above 76, 78 degrees, and then you have a cloud and it's going to drift. Uh, Douglas County got sued about 20 years ago because they sprayed 2,4-D and it wiped out a vineyard and orchard out by Overbrook. So these chemicals, who, who's going to apply them? This Nextra have a, uh, a, an employee, or is it going to be a contractor? How do you know if that contractor's license to put down those chemicals? There's a lot of things that you guys have to consider before you vote on this. And also, why, why does a big company like this have to have four LLCs? I'll tell you why they have to have four LLCs because if they're sued, they have to go through three LLCs to get the last LLC that has the money. Thank you.
1: Thank you, Mr. Fuller, Luke Sinclair chair. Um, Next person I have on the list is uh, Dorothy Barnett. Ms. Barnett, are you um, on the line or in person?
16: I'm here on the line. Thank you, Chairman. Good evening, Planning Commission members. I'm Dorothy Barnett, Executive Director of the Climate and Energy Project. Um, for those of you who might be unfamiliar with our organization, we are the leading climate and energy nonprofit in Kansas, providing education, outreach, and advocacy around clean energy and equitable carbon uh, decarbonizations since 2007. We were actually started right there in Lawrence. When the wind industry was emerging 15 years ago, our team educated ourselves using peer-reviewed science-based information and in consultation with colleagues throughout the Midwest to become Kansas experts on technology, siting, manufacturing policy and regulations of wind. Um, For the past five years, we've been leading the advocacy on distributed generation like rooftop solar at the state legislature and the Kansas Corporation Commission. We're in the process of getting up to speed on all things utility scale solar, as that is an important emerging industry for Kansas. Um, Many have covered the latest IPCC report, so I'll move straight into what we must do in light of the climate disaster we're facing um, the IEA International Energy Association's Net Zero by 2050 report calls for scaling up solar and wind rapidly in this decade, reaching annual additions of 630 gigawatts of solar PV and 390 gigawatts of wind by 2030. Um, that's four times the record levels that were set in 2020. For solar PV, this is the equivalent of installing the world's current largest solar park roughly every day for the next 10 years. We cannot get where we need to be in this climate battle without large scale utility solar. Um, I've reviewed the latest draft of your solar regulations and I am concerned that they do not reflect the leadership that I know Douglas County and Lawrence strive for. Um, I'm specifically concerned with the proposed thousand acre cap Um, While there has been some attempts to mitigate it, um, it still is not aligned with the current state of the industry. According to the Southwest Power Pool, which is our regional grid manager, solar interconnection requests are getting larger. Um, the SPP data indicates that after this year, there would likely be no solar projects in their queue small enough to build in Douglas County under a 1,000 acre cap. Additionally, we are a participant in Evergy's um, integrated resource plan uh, where they're deciding what they're going to do for the next 15 years. And their publicly available data indicates that they plan to add 3,200 megawatts of solar between 2023 and 2032. Um, if the most climate-friendly county in the state sets a solar acre cap, I'm not sure how we will ever make the transition that we're all pushing Evergy to make. Um, I wanna leave you with one thought. Um, How do Douglas County regulations line up with the home of Coke Industries, Sedgwick County? Well, let me tell you, their regulations do not have an acreage cap. They have reasonable setbacks. They do not have a noise limit. The city of Wichita um, is discussing a climate action plan uh, following in your footsteps. And the county will soon adopt a food policy plan to take advantage of their rich agricultural land. Cedric County understands that a solar project located on agricultural ground preserves and enhances the soil for future agricultural uses and can serve as protection against other potential competing uses. Um, this preservation and enhancement of the agriculture ground allows for resilient food systems long into the future um, as you discuss your solar regulations tonight I, I hope you will find a path forward that helps meet the climate challenge and shows the climate leadership that i know you strive for um thank you and i'm happy to answer questions at the appropriate time
1: thank you ms barnett luke sinclair chair Next person on my list is um, Corinne Pagel Miners. And I apologize if I totally just um, butchered your name.
9: Go ahead. Good evening, everyone. No, that was pretty close. My name is Karen Pagel Miners. I'm chair of the Wakarusa Group, which is the local Sierra Club uh, group in the Lawrence and Baldwin areas. Um, Zach Pistora will be giving the Uh, official Sierra Club uh, position and um, I uh, don't want to take up time repeating things so um, uh, I do want just I want to first of all commend uh, the planning commission and staff for the thoroughness and thoughtfulness Of the proposed text amendment, uh, which uh, could well serve as model standards for other counties, and so um, that you know it's it's um, that. And then I have um, basically uh, just some questions and small things uh, to add. For the, okay, I guess one question, and I'm just a little bit out of my depth here on the uh, building permits, Uh, are are building permit codes adequate for uh, a pertinent facilities, or is there something unique um, about solar rays and the other buildings that um, we need to address? Uh, Uh, Mary already suggested something to that effect. So um, that's just, I, you know, it sounds like that is being looked at. Uh, My other question is on gravel. There's no gravel, right? That seems to be the um, implication, but, you know, gravel would be bad because that's just really hard to move on from. One thing I would request um, under the um, the um, application and required documents under uh, existing conditions, be existing conditions, and under three, the location and size of any abandoned or current wells, and then in parentheses, you have oil, water, geothermal, etc. Is to specifically add injection wells. Um, I realize that that injection wells would probably be covered under et cetera, but because of the unique uh, problems uh, or potential problems of uh, injection wells, whether they are plugged or unplugged, monitored or unmonitored, um, it might be good to uh, insert specifically them in either item number three or give them their own line um and uh and then um under uh standards um let's see that's the um uh there are lots of suggestions for uh ways to mitigate that are not i think it's worded um under the standards for farmland, um, uh, there's four examples under the such as, and I would uh, have more um, items under that, but that might uh, be best saved for when individual applications uh, come in. One final question is, um, I'm just, how long does it take to get uh, a solar farm up and running? Um, I guess I'm just curious about that. So, um, any other time I will, I will hand over to Zach, uh, if he needs a little bit longer, thanks.
1: Thank you, ma'am. Luke Sinclair chair. Uh, I suppose then Mr. Pastora, did you want to present now?
17: Yeah, be happy to, uh, thank you. Uh, commissioners, uh, good evening. Um, appreciate the opportunity to supply a public comment on behalf of Sierra Club, one of the oldest and largest grassroots environmental organizations in the country. We have about 5,000 members across the great state of Kansas, 583 dues-paying members in Douglas County, and 861 supporters in the county. Uh, I happen to live in a rural area just outside the county, so um, all this discussion is meaningful to me personally. Uh, the Sierra Club is proud to uphold its mission to educate and enlist humanity, to protect and restore both the quality of the human and natural environments. We care about people in the communities, the ecosystems and the natural resources that are fundamentals to life as we know it. But uh, as you know, sadly, our livelihoods and natural ecosystems are being threatened by the severe effects of climate change from human-produced greenhouse gases and the rapid pollution of the atmosphere. As Professor Ruman and as well as the United Nations report uh, articulated well, climate change is dire, it's upon us, and requires an urgent and scaled response. Thus, we advocate for 100% clean energy by 2030 and support a variety of means to get there, including large-scale solar. Uh, We are here today to offer our support for the responsible solar development in Douglas County, as you laid out. Um, Large-scale solar projects are a key solution here, and it's clear by Douglas County's planning uh, proposed regulations that it's clear to you that also uh, the interest of protecting topsoil, agricultural opportunities, trees, water bodies, next door neighbors, and other environmental interests uh, are important. Uh, The regulations we see here strike a balance of economic and environmental interests uh, to serve the public and invite much needed investment into solar uh, in the county. With that in mind, we do have some suggestions to make your regulations even better. Um, First, uh, let me say that, low impact solar design is the way to go. It it's keeps to- topsoil intact, promotes native vegetation underneath the panels, and it's likely to be the premier standard of large-scale solar going forward. Let me tell you why. Uh, Department of Energy's uh, um, research has showed that by keeping uh, vegetation and native vegetation specifically um, underneath the solar panels, Uh, We can be able to produce food, retain water and soil in a better uh, way and even reduce um, costs uh, for the developers. Uh, Rather than utilizing turf grass or gravel under the solar arrays, we can utilize these low impact kind of sustainable designs to avoid expenses from excavation and ground clearing, but also soil erosion, mowing and spraying. Uh, and and even flourishing vegetation can even boost renewable energy from the solar panels because it cools the panels off with increased evaporation and and ground shading. Um, So we would encourage that. Agrivoltaics is also promising, but we wouldn't write that into the regulations um, as we would basic low impact solar design that you've incorporated from, from our view into the standards. Um, important that we shouldn't be in the business of over regulating landowners and developers in solar siting. You provide a great minimum basic standards uh, for critical energy transformation, but we should not disallow the opportunity for farmers or other landowners on top of top prime farmland to be able to harvest a solar crop. Okay. We're lucky to have a lot of prime farmland in Douglas County, but we also have a great solar resource. So should we should respect the property uh, rights and market ambitions for both. Um, and you heard that, you know, right now you could argue that there's a critical, more critical harvest uh, for humanity and agriculture, and that's dealing with the, the climate change issue. Couple more points. Uh, we suggest deleting the 1,000 acre project maximum. It's all about the quality of the project. Uh, that would negate any harm from the quantity. It's kind of like uh, overeating when it when you're doing fruits and vegetables, like you can't really overeat healthy food that's good for you. In the way here, uh, such an arbitrary limit of, of 1,000 acres could reduce the economic benefits for the county, for the landowners, and uh, reduce the profitability uh, and drive up costs for the scale solar developers. And while we're not necessarily interested in profitability, right, as an environmental organization, When it comes to profitability as the means to expedite and expand the renewable energy transformation, that's a great thing, right? So uh, we would encourage that. Get rid of the 1,000-acre limit to uh, to help ensure that. Um, Those are the main –
1: I was just going to say,
17: yeah, at your service, uh, just can't uh, express our gratitude enough for for these responsible, um, thoughtful uh, planning regulations.
1: Appreciate it. Luke Sinclair Chair, thank you, Mr. Pastora. Uh, the next person on my list is Penny Von Aken. Are you on the line here, ma'am?
18: I am on the line. I
6: hadn't planned to speak, however.
1: Okay. Luke Sinclair chair. Uh, you do if you don't want to say anything about this, that's fine. Maybe I maybe I was incorrect about my list.
6: I I would since, since you called on me, I would state one thing though. Um, I would hope that you would think as a planning commission very carefully before you would allow them to keep their wires and cables underground. We don't know in 30 or 60 years when those are pulled, when those uh, solar arrays are going to be removed, what kind of problems that would create. I would really, it's, it's not, a, it's not, it shouldn't be turned into a landfill. I would really hope that you uh, require them to remove everything underground and they when they leave that. Thank you, and thank you to Mary Miller for an excellent job on writing these standards.
1: Thank you, ma'am. Luke Sinclair, chair. Those are the people I had on my list. Is there anybody else on the Zoom call that would like to make any comments?
2: This is Becky Pepper, planning manager. I'm not seeing any raised hands uh, on the zoom, but we do have individuals here in the city commission room.
1: Luke Sinclair chair. Thank you. Um, then any individuals in the, uh, in the room there, if you'd like to make comments, please, please go ahead and step up. And if you wouldn't mind, um, stating your name, uh, for everybody on the call.
19: My name's Alan England. And some of what I have prepared is uh, redundant to what's been prepared, been talked about so, so far. So I'll change course here. You know, we have in the United States, we have three hundred thirty three million people. Over the next 20 years, that's forecast to grow by 40 million. Globally, the United Nation predicts world population will grow by another one point four billion in that same 20 year period. We you know, approaching 10 billion people. Uh, so this population is going to need food and you all are rightfully concerned about prime farmland. I had the good fortune some time ago to talk with some people who are in the solar development industry, and they're not ones that are represented here. And I was asking them, what can I expect if I have a solar facility next door? One of the things they said during the construction period, you can expect that there'll be a lot of earth moved. AKA, that's also topsoil, that it'll be moved. It'll be dusty, it'll be congestion, there'll be traffic, there'll be runoff when it rains, and uh, that'll be substantial. Now I ask you to consider you know, while there won't be any removal of topsoils by the solar companies because you've got that written in your regulations, it'll go off, you know, it will be removed. It'll be removed in the wind, it'll be removed in the rain. So think about that and consider that in your guidelines. You know with climate change there's a lot of places in this united states that's becoming more arable as a result of climate change a lot of great places to put solar eliminating the food supply for a period of 30 to 60 years i don't think is a good solution thank you
1: thank you sir luke sinclair chair Uh, other members of the public that wish to make a comment
20: Hi, my name's Travis Hardy. I live out there where this is, you know, going to take place. And we keep talking about this thousand acres and let's be clear. It's not a thousand acres. Johnson County has over 2000 acres involved in this. So we're talking, you know, over 3000 acres involved in this you know, process. You know, we keep hearing about, you know, climate change, which is a huge problem, but I haven't heard anybody talk about what's going to be done to protect us. People living out there just going to have to deal with this. I mean, you know, I moved out in the country because I like being out there. I've animals. You know, I didn't move out there. I want to see solar panels. My property value is going to go down. I mean, bottom line. And so who's going to protect me from that? My biggest asset I have is my house. And I'm going to you know lose, you know, I'm going to lose out of this deal. I don't know what I'm going to get because we've heard from Nextera, power's going in the grid. So we're not even going to get the benefit of the power here, which is a bummer, right? So I'm trying to figure out, you know, What's being done for us? I mean, we're the ones that on a day-to-day basis, we're going to be out there dealing with this. I mean, like what's already been said, these farmers that are, you know, giving this land up, they're going to be making money, but they're not even out there to deal with this. So, it's real easy for them to say, oh, yeah, sure, take my land, use it, you know, pay me, you know, the the amount of money you're going to pay me, and out of sight, out of mind. But I'm just asking, you know, for us, it's a way of life out there. I mean, we like being out there because, you know, we don't live in town. You know, it'd be nice, you know, to think about that instead of, you know, all the other stuff as well. I mean, what's going to happen for me? Am I going to want to stay out there? Probably not. If, if I'm looking at solar panels all day, you know, if the temperature is going to rise, you know, these aren't things that I enjoy. Heck, you know, I haven't heard anything. You know, we talk about a big fence, you know, there's wildlife across the road for me now. There's corn crop you know deer walking through there i like seeing stuff like that well what's going to happen to the wildlife you know there's been mention of possible you know walk through areas and stuff but if you're taking away the you know the crops you know and it's going to heat up the air these animals are going to move away i mean they're going to go somewhere where this isn't i mean it's going to have an impact there's definitely downsides to this And i just hope that you know when you guys are thinking about this you think about us out there as well and you know hopefully you know
1: I don't want to pass it flat out. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Hardy. Luke Sinclair chair, um, other, other members of the public there that wish to speak, go ahead and step up to the podium.
21: Thank you, council members, everybody. Uh, my name is Martin Belcher. I am a landowner, small landowner in that area. And to reiterate what everybody else has said here, I don't want to look out my living room window and see a reflection of solar panels. It's just that simple. I do believe that a thousand acres is God's plenty because you have already gone to Johnson County and they're pretty much on board. Hopefully you folks will reconsider everything. Uh, My opinion and a lot of other people's opinion, there's better places for this uh The lake is one. I have not heard anybody say an alternative place for this thousand do- or thousand acre property <clears throat> or project, excuse me. You've already got a buffer zone in that area if you was to talk to the core or whoever owns that property out there. You know, you build it right in the center of all those trees who's affected the water will go off into the lake area and help provide drinking water for a city of Lawrence and other areas. I agree. Our property values are going to diminish. I've heard a lot of talk about row crop. Nobody's mentioned row crop, but agricultural. But uh, nobody specifically said anything about livestock. There's a lot of ranchers in our area that uh, depend on livestock for their living. They've worked hard. I've worked hard all my life to get what we've got. I would hope that the commission uh, who voted on this uh, sustainable food production for that area here just in the past three to six months, we'll remember how they voted and give us some deep thought to this. Would you want to live in that area yourself? No. Uh, when I first heard of this, I told my wife, hey, that's it. I'm packing up and moving out. But she's changed my mind. <laughs> there's too many advantages, but there's a lot of disadvantages to living there. Uh, Another issue, somebody said something about gravel. Try not to go over three minutes and I'm getting close. The infrastructure out there is terrible. Who's going to maintain the roads or dust control? Things of that nature. I've got a million other things that's listed here, but I'll respect your three minutes. Thanks for your time.
1: Thank you, Mr. Belcher. Luke Sinclair, uh, Planning Commissioner or planning chair, sorry. Uh, any other members of the public that wish to say anything in there?
18: My name is Sue Inwright, and I don't want to repeat what a lot of the others have said. But my main concern is, is it seems like a lot of other people knew about this meeting, but all the people that were going to be affected that live around the area, we weren't told. We had no idea this was going on. Luckily, someone found out and started calling all the rest of us. Um, We also, we would like to know the list of the chemicals that will be used. And again, who's responsible for the application. We cannot stress enough about this chemical use, the chemical drifting and the runoff. We are already a no spray sensitive crop area. We have varieties of plants inside and outside of our greenhouse. Also, there is neighboring grape fields and vegetable fields growing within a mile. And to say again, we have sandy soil. All four of our wells enter, the water enters at a 24 to 40 foot level. Years ago, a power company contaminated our well. We received no help from Douglas County or the state of Kansas concerning the misuse of this chemical. We're wondering who's going to protect us now. It took 10 years for that chemical to be flushed out of our well. Who will be responsible 30 years from now as far as cleaning this up when it's not in use? Are the solar complex companies going to be responsible for the mess or will they pull out and leave it for us? Who will put it back the way it was in the beginning? Please put yourself in our shoes. Is this something you wanna look across from the street from your home? Think about us too. Thanks.
1: Thank you, Ms. Enright, Luke Sinclair Chair. Any other members in the, of the public there in, in the chambers that wish to comment?
22: Good evening, my name is Richard Lungstrom. Um, I live in Lawrence. I'm concerned, however, I I also was only made aware of this issue very recently, and so I'm not really up to speed on everything that's gone before. I don't think, however, that the equities balance very well for the development of larger scale solar in Douglas County. The reason being, Douglas County's not a huge county. It's one of a handful of counties with an increasing population these days in Kansas. And uh, we do have a number of areas with sensitive soils. I think what Ms. Francisco and what Mr. Fuller said earlier combined suggests that there ought to be some kind of zoning whereby um, this kind of development might be allowed some places and not others based in part on soil type and not just the agricultural use of the soil, but the erosibility of the soil a lot of the argument in favor of developing solar energy around here is probably a, mostly a feel good uh, argument that is to say that we ought to lead well i don't know that it, i don't know that this sort of race to the race to the bottom for using large tracts of land in a in a limited area under a lot of development pressure is necessarily a really i don't know that the the this kind of industrial development is really a very good use here when we've got a lot of areas of the state that are losing population and are losing, um, their access to water for, uh, for, uh, agricultural purposes. Um, I had a lot of things I was interested in saying, but I wanted to, to, cut to uh, cut past a lot of that because I see that a lot of it's already been addressed. Um, I just fear that, that we're losing sight of, and of, of the uh, environmental equities here. There may be other, basically, if we do keep a thousand acre or smaller cap on the size of these developments, it may point to the uh, power companies that this might not be the place and the time for those projects. Some point they may be able to have profitable projects on parcels small enough, but I don't think at this point they they really can. not um, And so it just might point to better viability of their projects in other counties. Um, and consequently, I think the planning commission needs to stand its ground on that and protect the rights of people who, whose interests here are already at stake as opposed to those of, people from other places who do not have a long-term vested interest in the county.
1: Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Longstrom. Luke Sinclair, Chair, other members of the public, feel free to step to the podium.
2: Becky Pepper, Planning Manager. Oh, we do have someone else. to the podium
7: hello my name is mike young um i just heard about this from one of my neighbors a couple days ago Uh, like i said it's kind of been kept secret from a lot of us that live right there i don't know i have not seen a map or any of that because i just learned of it i don't know how much land around me it's going to take in but from what my neighbor tells me i'm going to be dead center of it and it's going to be on all four sides of me and this does not make me happy my uh, land what it's worth uh, is going to go down in value tremendously and i moved out in the country out in that area because i got bought out by the intermodal when it went in at gardner and had was forced to move and now it's looking like i'm going to be forced to move again because i'm going to be in the middle of a of a solar farm so it's it's not a good thing as far as i'm seeing it but thank you
1: thank you mr young are there any other uh, commenters in the chambers that wish to speak
2: Becky Pepper, planning manager, uh, there do not appear to be any others, uh, to speak.
1: Thank you, Becky. Luke Sinclair, chair. I guess last call for anybody on the zoom call, uh, for public comment.
2: Becky Pepper, Man- planning manager. I don't see any raised hands on the zoom call.
1: Thank you, Becky Luke Sinclair chair. Um, At this time, then, uh, I guess we would bring it back to the um, Commission to discuss before doing so, though, I want to just see, is there any Commissioner that is willing or wanting to have a break now before we have uh, a discussion or do we want to push forward and take a break between this and our study session uh, on NPO. Commissioner Ashworth.
3: Uh, this might take a while. So I would suggest a break now before the, um, for the change of topic.
1: Okay. Looks Luke Sinclair chair. Why don't we then take um, a five minute break uh, before discussing it and everyone,
23: if you can be back by um, about eight 11 or eight 12, that'd be great. Thank you.
24: Mr. Chair, the room is ready when you are. Also,
1: Luke Sinclair Chair, Um, Uh, Luke Sinclair Chair. Ladies and gentlemen in the in the chambers, maybe you could start making your way back to your seats and we can um, start having a discussion. Um, and hopefully commissioners will slowly make their way back to the cameras. Um, our, our solar panels. Thank you everyone for your comments. Um, now's the time where uh, the commissioners will discuss uh, amongst <laughs> ourselves the, um, the agenda item um, taking into account the comments you've made and may have questions for uh, for some of you. so please do stick around. Um, so this is the second time it's this particular matter has been in front of us. Uh, we talked about it in June. Um, and uh, some changes have been made. Um, I'm guessing commissioners may have additional thoughts um, on uh, on the changes that were made or on other items. Um, so, who wants to who wants to get the ball rolling? Commissioner Willie.
8: Karen Willie, Planning Commissioner. As you might guess, I will have a lot to say at some point, but I'd like us to just back up a step and have Mary explain what we're doing here tonight, which is talking about regulations for any solar project that might come to Douglas County versus what would happen if a specific project came and the CUP process, which would be a full public process with maps and neighbor notification. Mary, could you talk to us about that?
11: Uh, Mary Miller Planner, yes. Thank you, Karen. That's uh, It seems there is a little confusion. Today, we're trying to set standards for um, these commercial utility scale energy conversion systems. Technically, they would fall under utilities. And if someone submitted an application today, we could process it. We just wouldn't have any standards. We'd have to develop them all as we go through the CUP process. So, as we spoke with people who were interested in maybe pursuing solar energy in Douglas County, we let them know that we would like to be able to develop standards first. It'll make it simpler for everyone. Uh, It'll be a better product in the end. So what we're doing right now is trying to develop standards for any commercial or utility grade scale um, solar energy conversion systems. It's not tied to one particular project. And so if Nextera was interested in a project or Savion or if someone else came in and uh, decided to move ahead with a project, they would have to submit an application and then uh, it would be reviewed Uh, 20 days before it goes to the Planning Commission, uh, we would notify neighbors within a half a mile. It's a mailed notice and there's a sign posting. It's, uh, there's a legal notice in the newspaper. And um, the actual regulations that we're writing right now require them to notify everyone within a mile before they even submit the application. So these standards would provide greater notification. So once the standards go through, if an application comes in, then people would be notified both before the application is submitted and then again before the planning commission so people would know that they could provide comments and what the date of the planning commission meeting is
8: so thank you mary
1: luke sinclair chair commissioner willie do you have a follow-up
8: Karen willie planning commissioner uh, thank you very much mary i think that will help it's also just to reiterate it's it's super important that Um, anyone who feels like they're going to be impacted by a future project that may be a specific project be here and comment like you did as we're making the regulations but just so that you know that if if anything specific comes forward that's uh, within a a mile of your property you would get a a letter in the mail about a specific meeting and you would get to be heard again so i'm really glad to just make that clear for people
1: thank you commissioner willie uh very good question and thank you mary for um, Talking about that, uh, Commissioner Willie, do you want to just offer any of your other thoughts while you sort of have the floor here, or do you want to? Up to you,
8: Aaron Willie, Planning Commissioner. Uh, I'll throw another one out. Um, can Mary? Can you address the thousand-acre cap versus a thousand acres per project? So I believe we're talking about not a thousand acres for the county, but a thousand acres for each project that would come forward through the public process. So. The same company could bring a second project back at a thousand acres and ask again is that correct
11: mary miller planner that is correct and then some of our early drafts we looked at setting like a three mile separation between uh, facilities however we don't know that large facilities are going to be the only application we could get a 10-acre solar farm application and then requiring three miles before the next one would Really hinder it, you know, so we backed off from having the separation requirement. But that 1,000 acres is per project.
1: Luke Sinclair Chair, Commissioner Ashworth,
3: um, Sharon Ashworth, Planning Commission. A couple more clarifying points now that uh, Commissioner really has brought up a thousand acres. So this is uh, a project, a thousand acres. Uh, total. So that doesn't necessarily mean it's a continuous um, thousand acres for a project. And also um, in terms of that thousand acres, that is any type of land we're talking about. It's not necessarily a cap on prime farmland or any other category of land. It's just simply a thousand acres
11: and, um, and it doesn't necessarily have to be continuous. Is that correct? Mary Miller Planner, uh, that's right. It does not need to be contiguous. A lot of times they'll have woodlands or streams they have to deal with, so we would want them to divide it in order to protect them. So it does not need to be contiguous. In order to be efficient, I think they'd like to be as close together as possible. But it's not required to be contiguous at all, and, and you're right; it is just for any type of land, 1,000 acres cap. So, anything under the solar arrays, regardless of what type of land it is.
1: Luke Sinclair, Chair, uh, Commissioner Carpenter. Oh, sorry. Well, first, Commissioner Carpenter, before you go, Commissioner Willie, did you have an, anything to add or talk about on that the acreage? No. Okay. Sorry, Commissioner Carpenter.
19: uh,
10: Jim Carpenter, I'd like to further clarify this thousand acres we've heard reference that this is actually the ground underneath the solar arrays or can you just what ground is included in the thousand acres and what additional ground is actually needed to get a thousand acres of solar arrays if that's how we're measuring.
11: Uh, Mary Miller Planner, um, it's the area under the solar arrays. And so when you look at the solar arrays, when they stand straight up, you know, they angle. So we would draw a per- perimeter around the solar arrays. And if they are, are separated, you know, you would just use an aerial drawing. And the area within the soil arrays, not the access drives, um, not vegetated buffer yards around them. We're just looking at what's under the solar panel, the solar arrays. And that's what we would use for our 1,000 acres.
10: Jim Carpenter, Planning commissioner. So in essence, what we're saying is a particular solar project could be several thousand acres out of agricultural productivity to get to a thousand acres of solar panels. Is that correct?
11: Uh, Mary Miller Planner, Uh, basically, I don't think it would be that many acres. I don't think they'd want to put in unnecessary access roads just to expand their project. Usually being condensed is much more efficient, but they could probably explain that better. We just wanted to make sure we were able to protect environmentally sensitive lands without infringing on their area. So we have two values. We want them to avoid wetlands, stream corridors, and not to go in and clear cut trees. And with wetlands and stream well, some stream quarters, we have some provisions. We don't really have any strong provisions for trees. So some of the environmental protection standards are pretty voluntary. So in order to get them, we want to protect environmentally sensitive lands, and we want to allow them room for their solar arrays. And that's why we're keeping those out of the area. If they, I think you're saying, if they just decided to fence off a huge area, for instance, setbacks, if it requires setbacks, we would not count that in the 1,000 feet. So having smaller setbacks would reduce the size. We just wanna make sure we have large enough setbacks to do the job.
10: Okay, Jim Carpenter, Planning Commissioner. So I can't recall ever seeing a conditional use permit that wasn't a contiguous plot of land that we were considering. So if we're talking about you know getting to a thousand acres we're going over streams we're going over roads when a conditional use permit for one of these facilities come forward is this going to be one big block whatever shape it is that all touches each other or are we going to skip with parcels i mean how does that work as far as a conditional use permit
11: Yeah, Mary Miller Planner, when a conditional use permit application comes in, and you'll see the legal description, we use the entire parcel. So if they have five acres on a 40-acre parcel, the CUP is going to note 40 acres. So you may have a 5,000-acre CUP just because maybe they bumped five acres onto several. I don't think it'd be that big, but because we want to notify neighbors. And if you only use the small portion that they are on that property, when you notify a certain distance, you're gonna miss a lot of people. So we always use the established parcel regardless of how much of it they use. And that is when we do the CUP and we say this is this many acres, but then we always say, this is the amount of acreage that's actually being used for the use. And we do that quite a lot. We've uh, we've done 80 acre farms where they just wanted to put an industrial scale. They had a, a little factory kind of thing in a, in a shed. So it was 80 acres that was listed on the CUP application. We notified everybody around the 80 acres, but their actual use was only two acres because that's where their building was. And that's how you would treat this. And you're right, we seldom do things that extend over road right-of-ways, but in this case, the size of the project um, we would. And I think with wind farms, it was probably the same way because a lot of wind farms might jump road right-of-ways as well. Thank you, Mary. Mm -hmm.
1: Sinclair Chair, Commissioner Willie.
8: I just wanted to give a little context for a thousand acres in Douglas County. Um, So I serve on our rural fire department. So we, we get to go to a lot of grass fires. So I have a pretty good understanding of of who has large acreages in Douglas County. And I only know of two landowners and Tanya could probably run this for another meeting if we wanted uh, that have plots uh, individual parcels or contiguous ownership that is 800 acres. Um, No more. Um, So one of the farmers, one of the larger farmers in the county that I, um, farmer ranchers that I ranch with um, manages about 3,000 acres between owned and leased land. And that's in about 25 different parcels. So I think realistically what we'd be talking about, and I'm happy for um, any of the folks from NextEra or or anyone else to weigh in on this, would be uh, an 80-acre parcel here maybe 160 acre parcel here and smaller parcels beyond that so the thousand acre project of of what's under the solar panels would be a lot of parcels not just a few so if anybody else wants to comment on that that's my take uh looks like tanya might
25: hi tanya voigt zoning director i think it's also um important to think about that a lot of the property owners not all but there will be property owners that will be non-participating which means that they will not be leased with the company. And so there will be parcels that are non-participating, not leased, and they will be skipped. So that's another reason you're not gonna get that contiguous ownership because some parcels are just not going to be leased property owners.
1: Thank you, Tanya. Luke Sinclair, uh, Chair. Commissioner Willie. do you have a (coughs) follow-up?
8: Karen Willie, Planning Commissioner. I think that leads straight into one of the questions that we had from from the audience that's present in the chamber. I could look up who it was. Uh, the question was why here, uh, why Douglas County, and, and the follow up to that was why where the where the power would be used. And I'm wondering if, if anyone that happens to be on the call from Nextera would would comment about you know why here Douglas County land is fairly valuable and also cut up into smaller parcels. So why here and where would that power be used?
23: Hey, this is Billy Wilkins from Next Area. Can you guys hear me okay? Yes. Hey, first off, thanks for the question. Um, I'm the developer for West Gardner Solar. Um, You know, it's a pretty simple uh, answer, I guess, in some ways, but our siting process includes uh, many factors, and one is proximity to transmission. So there's actually West Gardner. substation which is in the area so we can actually transmit the power directly to the grid um a a relatively close proximity to the actual area where we're we're trying to acquire land excuse me um so it's close to transmission also relatively you know accessible land that is flat and can be built um and uh you know there's other conditions that are a deal, but mostly it's proximity to transmission
1: thank you mr wilkins um luke sinclair chair commissioner ashworth
3: chair ashworth planning commission yeah uh just piggybacking on what commissioner willie asked um someone one of the industry representatives here could talk about um the viability of a solar facility that is many different parcels that make up the so-called farm. I think of it as kind of like a mitigation bank for wetlands where it's not just one big continuous parcel, but 200 acres, 500 acres, uh, up to a thousand acres. Is that a viable solar facility to have it parceled out like that?
23: So it's a uh, it's actually preferred for us to have contiguous land, so parcels that are connected together. Um, but because this is a choice, you know, we approach landowners and they have a choice of whether or not they want to participate. Um, I think the earlier description is accurate, where we may have a parcel that's 80 acres that's connected to another parcel that's 100 acres, and then we may have a gap um, in between those, um, and it just depends on which landowners actually want to participate in the area where we're trying to acquire land. But our, our preference actually is to have a contiguous site um, that's from a from a cost perspective, um, it's more preferred, most preferred. Um, and uh, you know, just from resource allocation, when you don't have to spread out your resources across a wider swath of, of land. Um, it's more beneficial to the economics of the project
1: thank you sir luke sinclair chair commissioner ashworth did that was that a satisfactory answer you know what I mean? okay other commissioners with questions um for commenters or or comments themselves commissioner ashworth
3: Chair, National Planning Commission, um, just to uh, pick up on um, another topic that was brought up by the public in the chambers on uh, I'm wondering if um, someone again from the industry could um, address the herbicide drift. Uh, now, it's my understanding that if this is agricultural land, there are already many herbicides and chemicals spread on agricultural land and um, so I don't know what might, what might be different about the chemicals uh, for vegetation control that might be used on a solar facility.
4: She wants
23: to talk about I'll try to talk to that one again. This is Billy Wilkins from Next Era. We're no different than any other um, company operating in the area where we would have to comply with all local laws. You know, I think, you know, the reality is that people have been living safely, um, around solar panels for generations. And, you know, the panels themselves are made of solid materials and don't pose any chemical hazard to the general public, um, or the underlying soil or groundwater. Um, so from the perspective of what's actually in the panels there's no danger now I understand you're probably referring to treatment of the of the land if there's any um, treatment of the grasses that may be in the area but for all that we would be in compliance with um, whatever the local regulations and laws are sinclair chair
1: thank you for that question and your response mr yeah. wilkins commissioner willie go ahead
8: karen willie planning commissioner yeah i'd like to tag along with that i think the specific concern was uh you know chemical drift from herbicide use uh for maintaining the vegetation around the panels and i think that's uh, you know i do recognize that you know agriculture commercial agriculture does use a lot of products, but that's not to say that they are safe or not problematic for the neighbors, especially for specialty crops. So um, I think if, if what we're going for is is land that is, um, hopefully has a continuous, a continuous vegetation under it, but that is maintained with minimal chemical use, I think we may have to um, spell something out and we can't, I don't want to discontinue, disallow chemical use, but I think we can, uh, you know, like 2,4-D and dicamba that are specifically known to drift and cause problems for specialty crops and people's gardens and orchards and things like that nearby. I I think something that could be spelled out. I also, if I don't mind showing my hand tonight, I don't expect that we will finish these regulations tonight. I think we have a lot to take in and I want to keep talking about it. I think we can make a lot of progress, but I, I think that we will have probably another stab at this.
1: Luke Sinclair, Chair, Commissioner Shanklin. Commissioner Shanklin, uh, go ahead and offer your thoughts.
26: I, I, I didn't hear me being recognized. Um, this is Greg Shanklin, Planning Commissioner.
1: Um, and just to follow on to
26: Commissioner Welly's comment there about uh, this, this taking uh, a little more conversation, one of the things I wanted to point out, and I tried to raise my hand as a point of order earlier before we started this conversation, is that um, we we have a novel uh, planning uh, or a novel land use that we're trying to plan for that's competing with uh, agriculture, um, which uh, neither of which I, I think we understand completely well, and so we're taking a a, a first stab at planning for. Um, the long term, um, with this, this novel land use, the, the solar farm, um, against uh, the use of, uh, at least at the moment, it's only discouraged, um, prime agricultural soil. And it's, it, to me, it's very unfortunate that we've taken this text amendment in the order that we have relative to the one that's coming up Wednesday night because it would have been nice to have a more fulsome conversation uh, about our scarce ag resources before we entered into this conversation. Um, and just as, as you know, to tip my hand a little bit here, I, I think it's puzzling that um, we're gonna look at lease standards on Wednesday night um, that would have us ranking high for protection Uh, any property outside the urban growth boundary that is more than 50% prime soils. And so, in in my view, we should just completely eliminate prime soils from consideration for solar farms and be done with it. Um, To to layer onto that, I'm very concerned about the text that we have for the reclamation process. Um, Mr. Allman noted before that it's highly likely that new technology is going to replace the the newly installed technology and so that we will never see uh, ag land used as ag land in the future under these panels. And even if that's not the case and there is no no new technology, um, I have a fair amount of experience uh, dealing with environmental remediation across the country. And a few things I've learned include that uh, initial estimates of reclamation costs, are usually wrong by an order of magnitude of 10 or more. Um, and secondly, the credit parties that you expected to be there 20 years from day one are not around any longer. They've either been declared insolvent, or they, they simply managed to move on. And, uh, earlier comment to refer to layers of LLCs, and that's certainly what I would do if I were setting up this company. So um, that, that's, that's my view on things. I don't think we're anywhere close uh, to having good regulations around the reclamation process. Um, there are text changes that I would want to make. I'd like to ask Mr. Larkin uh, if he's on the call, if, if this were reviewed by creditors rights council with environmental remediation experience, uh, because there are lots of things we should be doing there to protect the county in the future. Um, including getting involved in the leasehold um, that, that should be built into these regulations so that uh, we don't get blindsided with another, you know, cleanup situation like we have farmland. So that's, that's my view on things.
1: Luke Sinclair, Chair. Thank you, Commissioner Shanklin. I think with respect to Randy Larkin, I don't think he's able to participate because this is a county related matter, but I might ask uh, Jeff, um would you be able to confirm that and maybe clarify sort of the um i I think it's a good question about sort of the order of this text amendment versus the one uh, that we will be hearing in a couple days on on the lisa standards
0: jeff crick planning and development services chair you are correct randy larkin is an assistant excuse me deputy city attorney so he's not able to participate on county items so he is not with us this evening on on this particular one um and it was it was a little bit of a toss-up on on your schedule on which one would go on which night and so we, we scheduled it in that way but i do agree with commissioner shanklin there is um there's an inherent uh link to them in many respects in the way that they talk about the item. So i think it's good they're going in the same month we just couldn't accommodate them both on the same night unfortunately
1: luke sinclair chair uh, thank you jeff other comments commissioner willie
8: karen willie planning commissioner uh, mary would you mind are you able to pull up the photos that i sent from this morning they they didn't make it into my i didn't get the packet i'd already read the packet and didn't see them come in uh, but i'd like to share those with and, and talk a little bit about my experience touring the baldwin city solar farm if, if possible um so the the, the baldwin, baldwin city put in a solar farm and it's actually um, run by and owned by EverG for the benefit of Baldwin City customers uh, on their their grid. They do a little bit of self-generation, even uh, Baldwin City does, even before uh, this plant went in. It's a one megawatt system on five acres. And Baldwin City, according to what they told us this morning at peak um, uh, use, uses about eight megawatts for for Baldwin City. So um, at, at the most, it's, it's producing one-eighth of of Baldwin City's power on five acres. So when I did a little bit of very quick math, if it is even scalable like this, uh, for a 1,000 acre project, that means that it would uh, produce about 200 megawatts. And I'm happy to have anyone who knows more about it uh, weigh in on that, uh, which would be about 25 times uh, Baldwin City's use. So the the 1,000 acres of solar panels is not a small project. And I think it, I think it could be kind of looked at in that way in terms of what its contribution could be. Um, Mary, are you looking for, okay. Um, So I I did ask while we were out there, uh, Baldwin City Public Works and and Evergy, they have joint um, responsibility over that uh, plot, if they would be interested in hosting a tour for any other planning commissioners who would like to see it. Uh, I have to say, I was I was very impressed. I was I was surprised at at how much I I liked it there. It was um, at the lowest, the panels were about two feet off the ground, and then of course taller than that. It is a fixed system, so it does not pivot with the sun. It's just south facing. Um, there was a permanent grass cover with a wildflower, native wildflower mix in it, and they're about two years in, and they expect by year three to have. Um, a larger percentage of wildfire, wildflowers there. It was full of pollinators. Um, they mow it twice a year to maintain it. Uh, when I asked about the possibility of you know, co-grazing with sheep and the solar panels, um, the Baldwin City guys were not especially excited about that, but Evergy said, not a problem, it can be done. So that was kind of the general gist of our tour there. I would say in terms of, I asked about noise and um, contaminants, and we stood by the, the inverters, which there was one per row, and they were in the middle of the row rather than at the ends, so that the distance from there to the property line was quite great. Um, the noise level was tiny. Um, the bug noises for just the being in the grass there were, were quite a bit louder, including the, the person that was mowing another property further away was, was louder than, than anything that came off of the property we were there. Um, we're looking at the, uh, as there isn't a proper substation here because it's too small, but there was a, a small, um, somebody would have to help me with uh, what the, the technology is here. The, the inverters are one for each row and then the these small uh, transformers, I guess. Um, and the small one provides power to the grid if the, if the power goes down and then the other it receives power from the grid. Um, I'm happy to answer any questions about that. It was, it was a good experience. I answered a lot of questions. Um, in terms of contaminants from the panels themselves, um, it, it didn't feel like a big concern for me, even as a soil scientist, as a, a somebody fairly knowledgeable with that. Um, Unless there's breakage of the panel, in which case I think that they would know that fairly quickly because all of this is monitored online. Um, that would be an issue and they would have to be replaced. But that was my general experience.
1: Thank you, Commissioner Willie. Luke Sinclair, Chair. Other comments or questions from commissioners? Commissioner uh, Rexrode.
5: Thank you, Commissioner Rexroad. Um, When I think about the question of acreage and I think about this um, as from a business perspective, um, uh, I I, I wonder about the question um, about how we set up an environment that's going to attract projects. Um, And I wonder and I'd, I'd love, I'm I'd not sure who to ask this question of, but I'd love to know the answer to this. If we removed the question of maximum acreage altogether, um, and it, it, it wasn't a part of the regulation, is it true that every project that comes through CUP would have that as one of the considerations for a yes or a no? Um, and I, I think there's, from a, again, from a business person's perspective, and I think about how we attract um, uh, projects uh, of, of any size, um, everything that we do that puts uh, restrictions out in front of, of, of someone becomes a limiter. And in fact, if we already know, uh, and the, the data that was uh, is a part of this uh, staff report suggests that average size projects today, commercial projects today, already exceed that cap. Um, if we uh, if we stick with that thousand acre um, limitation, even though it might be removed by waiver if we stick with that would that put us in a position where um, some projects might not even be considered here we wouldn't even have a chance to say no i wonder if just again from a business person's perspective if we should think about enabling businesses to come in and look at the entire environment and then have the question of soil type which is certainly critically important but have that question as a separate question from the size of a project. That's that's the question of where, as opposed to how big it might be. So I'd love the answer to the question uh, from Steph about uh, if if we removed it altogether, would that in any way um, remove the right that uh, either this commission or or County Commission later would have to say no to the project based on the where or or the how big. The other comment I'd like to make is something that hasn't been brought up yet. Um, We've talked quite a little bit about the advantage of solar, the critical need for um, alternative sources of energy from a climate perspective. And I I completely agree with those thoughts and everything that we do um, to that end is helpful everything we can do to create an environment where where those kinds of projects might come to douglas county is part of how we contribute to that but as part of my day job i work with um, fortune 500 companies all over the country and these companies are actively working to reduce their carbon footprint they're looking for ways that they can um, uh, uh, build their business and contribute to uh, either a carbon neutral kind of position, which makes counties like Douglas County, if it had a renewable energy source, a prime location for them to consider. That gives Douglas County, our chamber, everyone around here, just one more economic development tool. That's something that hasn't come up before, but I know that it's something that's out there in the mind of corporate America. So just the combination of those things has me leaning towards this idea that if we remove the language on CAP altogether and let projects come, because we always have that right to say no about where it is or how big it might be.
4: we we'll stop there.
1: Luke Sinclair, Chair. Um, thank you, Commissioner Rexroad. Uh, Mary, I guess, would would you like to address some of those comments from Commissioner Rexroad? Would you be Mary able to? Mary Miller
11: Planner. Yes, I, I understand he was asking If we did not have the 1,000-acre cap, would the Commission have the ability to deny a project? And you do on a conditional use, you have the ability to deny a project in total, or when a project comes through, you can deny it on certain parcels. If for some reason you feel a parcel shouldn't have um, solar panels on it, maybe some features about it you find are unacceptable. Um, It's a lot like when a quarry comes through, I just have more familiarity with those we had one that came through and it's going to be 900 acres which is pretty huge for a quarry but based on the location the commission found it was acceptable had you not you could have said we would approve 500 acres so you do have the ability it's a conditional use they have no guarantees when they submit and so you know it's uh the commission can decide and they can place additional conditions even that aren't in the standards
1: and Sinclair, Chair, Commissioner Ashworth.
11: Chair, uh, National Planning Commissioner.
3: Uh, uh, also, I've, I have a couple comments um, about the thousand-acre, but um, just what Mary just said uh, makes me think even strongly that I think this thousand-acre cap is somewhat arbitrary. Um, I, it doesn't mean a thousand acres of prime farmland. Um, there can be uh, gaps in a thousand-acre project. Um, to accommodate environmentally sensitive lands. Um, As uh, Mary Miller just said, we can approve certain parcels, not other parcels. Um, So I'm finding that flexibility uh, a nice environment. And I I just find that thousand acre cap somewhat arbitrary. I don't think it allows for creativity. I don't think it allows for um, businesses to find this area attractive for solar farms. Uh, I think a solar farm um, in Douglas County uh, is, a, is a statement and um, will add to at least our attempts for a climate mitigation plan, which is something that we're taking up um, in the coming months or a year is a climate mitigation plan. Um, and then the other uh, comment I had is terms of reclamation. Um, I am also familiar with a number of reclamation projects and share the concerns of a couple of the other commissioners about reclamation projects. Um, however, uh, these sorts of projects, uh, many of them uh, are actually, could in fact do an, be an improvement in terms of the soil. If you're gonna put native vegetation uh, on these areas, that's actually a long way towards rec- reclaiming um, the fertility of the soils in this area, Uh, if you're going to have maintained native perennial ground cover there, uh, that's a long way um, into when you pull up those solar panels at at a decommissioning, you've you've already managed to reclaim a good portion of the the viability of that soil and the protection of that soil from um, erosion.
1: Thank you, Commissioner Ashworth. Other comments,
10: Commissioner uh, Carpenter. Jim Carpenter, Planning Commissioner. I'm struggling to know where to start. There's so much here at so many different levels. We've heard people speaking about these issues from multiple perspectives and levels. Economics, we wanna make a statement that we are actually environmentally progressive in Douglas County and if we deny expansion of this or allowing this to happen, then we're not following what we've already set in plan 2040, the competing values of the individual landowners, the farmers. Um, I'm, I'm, And the fact that solar itself and the production of solar panels and all the infrastructure for it is not carbon neutral. It's extractive technology spread around the world. There's transportation costs to get here. There's petrochemicals used in the production. I mean, the end product is to capture sunlight. I don't like the term solar farm. That came around a long time ago to try to make these projects more palatable, to try to get interest in them. This is a a utility. This is a solar powered utility, not a farm. And I don't want to literally sell the farm for solar utilities. I think we have a balance here. I think solar is incredibly important and a laudable goal, and we need it. I I share some of the concerns about the location. Well, I know for a fact that NextEra has been purchasing options throughout the eastern part of the county and into Johnson County. We don't know how many acres that is, how many landowners that is. Um, we don't know what's what's out there waiting for us. So we're kind of operating in a vacuum. Plus, we've heard from staff, county staff, that NextEra is just one of possibly four or five companies looking to place solar utilities in our county and are all interested in this, we don't know what the total acreage that's gonna be requested is. I'm very intrigued by what Senator Mark uh, Francisco raised and some other speakers raised about, I, and about the Lisa that's on the land evaluation system that we're gonna talk about Wednesday. I think we got the cart before the force here. I, I'm intrigued by the idea of identifying what type of soils these should not be on, first, uh, what type of soils are, should be available for this. Um, we kind of need to have an inventory of just what we're looking at, because every every acre we put under solar, we take out of ag production for, as one speaker said, 30, 60, possibly even longer as technologies improve, as Michael Ullman pointed out, we'll probably replace these and come up with more efficient ones, and they're not going to as long as they're making a profit and contributing to the grid. Um, You know, we're not the best area in the state for collecting sunlight. You look at the solar maps, it gets better and better as you go west and south, which is also land that doesn't have water for agriculture. So, you know, part of this is about easy distribution to a market. We have no guarantees that any of these are going to come and help us. There have been questions posed to Nextera on their Facebook page, which has been up since December. How will this reduce my utility bills? They the, the answer has been we haven't even identified a buyer for our product or electricity yet. It's going to feed into the grid. Who knows where it's going to go? And you know what it's going to do to you know rates. We can already purchase, you know, through. Our utility companies we can say we want our utilities our electricity to mostly come from renewable sources and you pay extra for the feeling that yours is coming from a renewable source but it's the same electricity in the wires it's <laughs> you don't know it doesn't know where it came from or where it's going so you know there's a lot of issues here and You know, looking at the map, we have 456 square miles of land in our county, and a lot of that's got buildings on it already. I I know the county's got maps of how much is already built, how much is parceled out, how much is available for agriculture. I think we need some larger discussions. How much agricultural do we need to protect? because with climate change, we've heard this, you know, we could, we're gonna be able to grow less as growing conditions change. Transportation systems are gonna be more expensive to transport food. Are we gonna to have to pull more into local agriculture to feed ourselves down the road over the next 30 years? I don't know. I don't see this as land agricultural land making. when you're talking 30, 50 years. You know, I don't know what it's going to do to the land. I don't know what the reclamation is going to be. We've heard those issues, too. I want to see solar utilities, but I don't want to lose our ability to grow the foods that we might need down the road, since most of our county is very good for growing crops and livestock. And other counties don't have that. You know, we don't, they don't, they aren't blessed with what we have here. So I don't want to, we have to find that balance. And I think we're just at the beginning of that conversation. And whether we're attracting industry to Douglas County or not, we have to weigh it against that, the long term value and sustainability of our county and our cities in our county. You know, we could, we could have, maybe we'll have more solar utilities than any other county. That doesn't help if we have to import more food at a higher price. So I don't know how we find that balance. I think we're on our way, but I think we need more information so we can figure out these rules. And um, I'd like to continue the conversation. I'll just point out also that at last Wednesday's County Commission meeting, um, Commissioner Kelly was very explicit in his support for protecting agricultural land in this county. They had the um, boat storage that we had that extended a conditional use permit that was only gonna take up less than an acre of ag land to expand it. He agreed with everything that we said, but he, he specifically voted no to send the message that agriculture Protection of agricultural land is a very high priority for this county. So, you know, it's they rarely send us queer messages like that. So, we have to find that proper balance as we move forward. So, that's where I am on this. And um, I wish we knew more just about what projects were being anticipated, how much land was already under contract, where this was. So we can fit that into our modeling and how we figure out where this is appropriate and where it's not appropriate.
1: Cause I don't think it's appropriate everywhere. <clears throat> Luke Sinclair chair. Thanks. Uh, commissioner Carpenter, commissioner Shanklin.
26: My apologies. I I don't know if you can hear me or not. I've I've had to change methods of communication here. I got knocked off my phone call. Um, Greg Shanklin, Planning Commissioner. Um, And as a result of getting knocked off, um, I I saw that uh, Commissioner Ashworth was um, making some comments and I caught the tail end of Commissioner Carpenter's comments, but I wanted to revert to something that uh, Commissioner Rexrode had said earlier because um, in, in my initial comments, I may have overemphasized my concern about the loss of ag land. Um, I, I'm too, as, as uh, Commissioner Rexrode is, very much in favor of finding good businesses for Douglas County. And one of the things I think we don't understand about this novel land use is what kind of business is it for Douglas County? Who benefits from it? Um, is it merely a tax rateable? I, I can't even speak to that because I, I don't know how utilities are taxed, um, but that would be good information for us for our consideration here. Um, I, I guess, and beyond that, I, you know, are, are there employment benefits? Um, are, are there secondary and tertiary market benefits that we get from having a solar farm in our county? The, those are things that it, it would just be helpful to understand before we wholesale commit to regulations that would permit something
1: well that as i said we don't fully understand so thank you thanks commissioner shanklin commissioner ashworth
3: Chair national planning commission just a procedural question process question for staff um i'm hearing a lot of uh comment about Uh, hesitating, um, certainly on these regulations, a lot of thoughtful uh, discussion that needs to happen. But I'm curious about the applications that might be coming forward. Um, You had mentioned, um, Mary, that uh, this was an attempt to get ahead of these applications that were coming in. So if this if our discussion of the regulations were to continue on, what happens, is: does that mean any applications that come in would be discussed without these regulations? Would there be a process for hammering out these regulations with further discussion before a project were to come in? Can you tell us
11: a little bit about what the implications are? I, Mary Miller, planner. I could try it, but I think I'll uh, defer to Jeff when I'm done. You know, unless it's a moratorium, people can submit applications. So, an application could come in tomorrow for a solar farm. It would fall under the category utilities, and we have no standards. And I don't know, Jeff, if there's what the process would be after that, if we would just uh, try to find a way to put it on hold or if we would have to process and while we're developing the standards.
0: Jeff Crick, Planning and Development Services. Typically, if that was to occur, you'd have to process under the standards which were adopted at the time the application was submitted. So it's whatever the application and rules are at the moment is when you proceed. So to give an example, it's probably a little bit more uh, easier to follow. If somebody submits a development under one set of guidelines requiring a certain amount of parking, it's the uh, guidelines that are applicable at the time of submission. apply so if the text amendment was for parking was to come in and change the standard but that application is still in process that process continues under the guidelines that were applicable when it was submitted so to kind of give you that 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 long range look for those things.
3: thank you
15: looks in clear chair
1: thanks commissioner ashworth thank you jeff other commissioners comments Commissioner
5: Rexrode, nice, Commissioner Rexroad Thank you. Um, I'm curious, um, Mr. Chair, uh, what our path forward would be if, if, we're saying that we need deeper conversation, we need to understand this further. How do we quantify that? Um, how do we get to a list of, of items that we say, okay, let's hammer these out definitively, so that we can move to um, uh, you know an initial body of of recommendations that would go on to uh, um, the commissioners to approve Um, uh, would it be possible to uh to identify that so that we can you know get our heads around that between now and the next conversation with the idea that in that next conversation we we come to a conclusion
1: luke sinclair chair i think it's a great question and i honestly don't know the right answer i i think we've covered a lot of different um topics tonight and concerns and i don't know i guess maybe i would bounce that question back to jeff is if we uh if one possibility was to defer is there enough substance from our discussion tonight for staff to be able to again revisit this um and maybe this time not in uh not in the sense of gathering additional comments from the public but actually trying to figure out, you know, how to address some of the things that commissioners have raised.
15: Jeff Craig,
0: Planning and Development Services. Uh, to the Chair's question, yeah, I believe we do have quite a list of, of items both the public has shared with us and we've also heard from the commissioners and see we need to kind of go back and start looking into it, researching and getting more information for you. So we do have quite a bit of lists and also defer to Mary to see if, if she would agree with that or, or if I'm... If my list is just on my own here but i feel like we got a pretty good direction of items to you know research and bring back for the commission's further consideration and, and mary feel free to let me know if i'm stepping off base on that comment
11: <laughs> mary miller planner no i agree i think the comments are very clear you know that uh everybody what they've said i think there's a set of comments basically that we could look at and it may be helpful after wednesday's discussion on the lisa uh, that we might find more information from that that people are interested in so I think
1: we would be able to use just the discussion. Luke Sinclair, Chair, I mean, my main concern, I guess in this is as I I don't want this to be sort of a perpetual uh, um, effort to kick the can down the road. Is Each time we come back, see what um, updates have been made or suggested revisions. We talk uh, about a lot of different topics um, feel unsatisfied and kick the can down the road again. I mean, I think we do need to get something um, going and uh, recommended to the county commission. I share, however, uh, um, concerns that a few commissioners have raised um, about not having the benefit of be um, hearing about the uh, about Lisa. Um, I think that can be really helpful. Um, one of my primary concerns about this is 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 truly um, what we do with prime prime soils and and ag land um, and how that's weighed against um, owner's rights. I think the commissioner Carpenter referenced um, and I guess economic development issues too. And I think Lisa, that discussion at least would be very helpful. Um, Commissioner Willie, I saw you raise your hand. And Willie planning
8: commissioner. I have just a few concrete things that I would want to see to move forward with and I, I am increasingly comfortable with the standards as uh, as the staff has been bringing to us um, the main one is uh, regardless of soil type if we are if we are putting the regulations in that we need for this to be um, as, as Commissioner Ashworth mentioned you know, a, a benefit long-term benefit to the soils which is you know permanent, uh, standing vegetation that is managed without a lot of chemical use. If this acts as, I know Commissioner Carpenter doesn't like the term land banking, um, but I do. I think that's the the goal that we're going for is to have solar production, yes, and it won't be, it, it may not be done in 30, 40, 50 years, but 100 years from now, and I think it's okay to think in that time scale that this land has more soil organic matter, more soil carbon than it did when we started and that it possibly ever would have had under conventional agriculture. And then that land then is available and mostly unadulterated for use uh, for long-term food production. That matters to me more than soil type, uh, more than class one and two soils. Uh, I think it's a standard that we can and should apply to any solar farm, solar uh, solar production area that we would talk about. And I think it's entirely doable. Uh, So, in terms of very specifics, the the soil tests that were asked for, um, I think an initial soil test for heavy metals to help inform the reclamation uh, process to know if there was any contamination that happened. And maybe that has to be done every 10 or 20 years just to be sure there isn't an issue. Um, But what I'd really like to see is um, soil organic matter or soil carbon um, testing that is done periodically, so that we know that, for one thing, we're not going backwards, and that I think we can be making a, a, an improvement. We could be storing carbon with with the right kind of management, and I think that's a standard that that is helpful for all of us and can be realistically achieved along with solar panels. The second issue that I have, uh, and I'm not sure how to resolve this, and I think it will take some more input from um, energy companies. Actually, is about the fencing. Um, if we're talking large tracts of land like this you fencing so deer apparently are problematic Uh, what can we do to make deer not problematic so that we don't have to have um, these large tracts of land every acre of which has to have a six or seven foot tall chain link fence that wildlife would not get through how we'd be taking this out of we might offer You know pollinator plots, but we wouldn't be offering anything to wildlife or wildlife migration. I'd I'd like to have some more information about that. Um, Can so when we were at the solar farm, um, saw some of the wiring is on the bottom of the panels. If that could be put in conduit, would you be less worried about deer? Like what what would it take to uh, kind of uh, rectify that that problem? Those are the really those are the two. Everything else is about scale and we have to work on that. So we'll just have to find out what's our comfort level as a commission and as a county with how much solar, but I I do think we can find a way to move forward with this.
1: Luke Sinclair, chair. Um, Commissioner Willie, if I could ask you a question, uh, just sort of in response to what you said, I think maybe it has to do with that, but the the language in the current regulations uh, that discusses um, the provision involving reclamation it talks about returning the land um, to a useful non-hazardous condition uh in terms of in terms of what the land um can be used for in the future i mean is that in your mind a satisfactory language is that uh specific enough um for, for what we can use it for? Is that just too amorphous? It seems to me that it is. But I'd, I'd be curious to know your thoughts on that.
8: I think it's a pretty low bar. I think we could probably work on the language there. Um, for, for one thing, um, that, like the, the, the small farm we visited, and I know that is a very small piece compared to what we're talking about acreage-wise, for, so it was five acres there. But the um the structure for the solar panels was pushed into the ground it wasn't excavated and then um filled with uh, concrete pylons that probably wouldn't be available everywhere but so, so there I, I, and then so there's not as much to tear out there really were just a few cables running from um, one one uh, solar row to the next and that uh, i'm i'm open to whether or not that stays in the ground or comes out of the ground, if it's under 36 inches. I know we leave all the rest of our utilities under the ground when we walk away from a property that are that deep. So I think that language could be worked on.
1: Luke Sinclair, Chair. Thanks for that, Commissioner Willie. Commissioner It,
27: It. It seems to me that we have in Douglas County made the commitment to solar panels we're saying we want them i I would need to know specifically and some of the other commissioners have touched on it and some of the people that spoke touched on it what is the benefit to douglas county what specifically would be the benefits to douglas county is it just a tax basis Uh, Are there better areas, I shouldn't even say are, there are better areas that um, sunlight-wise are better than Douglas County. But what is the purpose for our saying we want solar panels in Douglas County? Now, anybody can apply, any company can apply for, and I don't, like the term solar farm either any energy company can apply for this solar array and we need regulations to um, to tell the solar companies what they can do but do we really want solar companies and solar panels in douglas county other than gosh, it's a great idea and the 2040 plan has said we want it, but what will be the benefits to Douglas County specifically? I would like to know that.
1: Thank you, Commissioner Thomas. Luke Sinclair Chair. Are there any other commissioners that want to sort of zero in on their comments for, I guess, make any comments about this or provide more um, specifics. Commissioner Rexrode.
5: Yes, I, I made a, this is Commissioner Rexroad. Thank you. I, I made a couple of comments about potential benefits. Um, I'm not an expert in the area. I can't uh, in any way quantify that, but I wonder if some of the industry folks that are on the phone with us today have some experience about the, uh, the positive benefits um, economic benefits, um, other long-term benefits that you have seen from projects that you've put in?
13: Yeah, this is Alan Anderson with Polsonelli. Yeah, and we've worked on most of the the wind projects in the state, and we certainly uh, are working on most of the solar projects as well. And there's a myriad of of things. So if we start with, there is a tax-based benefit you'd have, both the property tax and so you'd have an increase in, in the personal property and real property tax so there would be the benefits there and those would be not not small you would have obviously direct payments to the participants in the project and that would then have a multiplier effect through the region and again we have to remember a project only goes in with willing participants who want to use their land as they deem the most economically beneficial and, and those kind of things so those people that revenue would also have Uh, economic impact through the area. There would be uh, significant, uh, you know, they call it a year to two-year period of time where you'd have uh, construction and those kind of things. And so you'd have the benefits during that period of time. And then you'd have some amount of permanent jobs from that. Uh, Additionally, of course, you have all the, as you referenced uh, and, and others have alluded to, you will have the benefit of the energy that will go into the to the grid but in and sometimes this is getting lost all energy goes into the grid unless it's consumed on site so that's not a negative that's how every that's how energy works It goes into the grid into the southwest power pool if it were contracted with the local utility then it would have um the benefits that we we see on the wind side too we in the state of kansas have you know nearly 50 percent of our energy coming from wind energy that has been exceptionally benefit to the rate to the rates. So we do benefit from the wind power. We'd similarly benefit from the solar in this case because solar has unique uh, properties because it comes on during some of the most expensive times for the utilities. So they're able to they'd be able to have that contracted. So there'd be rate benefit that we would see because that would go and even though it goes into the grid to be contracted likely with a utility, um, and you'd have. Um, Then, as as stated before, it's not to feel good about having a solar project. Those are all direct benefits. Additionally, then we'd be doing the part that is necessary to mitigate against climate change that can have significant economic detriments. So it's a mitigation against those detriments too. As we think about farmland, it has a chance to mitigate against the massive impacts of those farm bankruptcies because now insurance is more expensive, it's more expensive to do all those different things related land so massive mitigating impacts that, 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 that this contributes to as well and again i think there's there's an opportunity to kind of speak about the economic benefits but it's it's layered and myriad and just just massive it's not just to feel good it's not because douglas county said they want to be part of the climate change as a feel-good story it's because it has direct impacts on people farmers and others that that if we don't do something with that but we also have mass amount of direct benefits right away
1: Sinclair, chair. Other comments from the commissioners? Commissioner Ashworth.
3: Uh, Sharon Ashworth, Planning Commission. Uh, I just want to say um, another comment is I, I would like to have um, utility scale solar as part of a portfolio of options for dealing with climate change. Um, climate action plan, mitigation plan that comes from um, Douglas County, I think needs to have that as part of its portfolio. Um, So yes, it is a balance with agricultural land and it is a balance with building and growth. It's a balance of what we use our land for, but it it has to be part of the portfolio um, for dealing with climate change. Um, I think it's critically important um, for us to have that uh, in our pocket to be able to do that. We've got a crisis on our hands and this has to be part
1: of the solution. Thanks, Commissioner Ashworth. Luke Sinclair, Chair. Um, I guess if I were to take the temperature, it sounds like the a, a good number of um, the commission wish to... Um, defer this to allow for some more tweaking um, but is there anyone that wants to push the other way or does someone want to make a motion uh, and see and see sort of where we are? Commissioner Ashworth
3: Just uh, Share Ashworth Planning Commission, I' just restate my concern that um, if we push this down the road, Um, I'm a little uncomfortable with pushing it down the road, um, too far. Um, if we've got projects that are coming up soon, I, I really don't want to go forward with them and, and, and try to discuss, um, a CUP without any standards.
1: Luke Sinclair chair. I, um, I understand those concerns, and and I agree with you. I think I'm sensitive to the the situation staff is in just because they're going to, if applications are coming in, they're going to have to be doing this work that we're doing right now on uh, the application, and that's what we're trying to avoid. Um, By the same token, I don't know that we'll be able to get a vote to recommend approval to this. It'll go up, um, you know, with a recommendation uh, of denial. And that'll sort of seems to me it would have the same impact, but but I don't know, uh, Commissioner Shanklin.
26: Greg uh, Shanklin, Planning Commissioner. Um, I, I've been wondering um, b- because I th- I think it's somewhat premature in that we don't have complete knowledge about uh, how these projects play out going forward. Um, is it possible to? To draft a set of regulations with a sunset that would enable a project or to, to get started, um, but then that would give us the opportunity to revisit uh, at some point, uh, some point fairly soon, I think, just, just as an alternative.
1: Luke Sinclair Chair, Commissioner Shanklin, is that something that was directed to the commission or are you asking staff as as an alternative?
0: I
26: I guess, I'm sorry. I I, I guess that um, anybody, um, whether staff or commissioners that are familiar with how we've addressed a problem like this before, where where we have a novel land use um, and wanna enable uh, some exploratory development in that area, but don't know what the long-range impacts to the county might be, is there some way that we can, uh, you know, do a little enabling, but not a lot, you know, and so that we can follow up with, with more information and and uh, change the regulations in, in a way that, um, you know, experience tells us? So I guess that's for, for um, Jeff Crick.
0: Jeff Craig, Planning and Development Services. Uh, Commissioner Shanklin, I, I don't know the answer to that question off the top of my head. Um, I can tell you in previous examples of land uses like this, the county chose to declare a moratorium to allow staff the time to develop standards and guidelines to come into place first because we didn't have the knowledge and the, the details for what we wanted to see in that longer term. And the recent example I can cite would be um, wind, wind farm facilities. We, we did a very similar example of that one, but i don't know i don't know the answer to your question about having a uh, interim set of design or it's gonna be interim set of use regulations to be in place I mean, i'd have to research that and get back to the commission on that item
1: and cleared chair um commissioner rexroad
5: thank you commissioner rexroad um i uh share with commissioner ashworth uh, an interest in in moving forward providing um our staff in our, our county with um, you know a, a, a foothold to begin looking at projects um, as I as I listened to commentary tonight um, there's a number of concerns that um, or voice number of questions that are outstanding one of the most consistent being around um, the uh, maximum acreage cap um, other questions as well, of course, but many of the other questions, particularly around um, the use of um, soil types one and two, um, I believe that we have the opportunity as a commission and and the, and then the uh, downstream authorities that would approve it um, to say yes or no to any of uh, any of those questions. We have the ability to to make land use decisions as those project specific projects um, come before us. Um, I'd be in favor tonight of um, moving forward with the work that has been done, I personally would love to see us either raise the um, uh, maximum cap to 2000 acres or remove it entirely, um, knowing that uh, this body and uh, the other commissioners um, have the ability to say yes or no to those things. Um, But that would give us an opportunity to move forward work through a project or two and if there are changes that we need to uh, rationalize based on some of that experience we can always revisit that i'm not sure if i'm the lone ranger in that or if there are other other commissioners who would be interested in moving forward
1: Uh, Uh, thank you commissioner rexford luke sinclair chair commissioner willie
8: And Willie, Planning Commissioner. In my experience, um, rushing is not helpful because when we do need to come back and revise something, we don't get we don't. It doesn't come back to us. And and we, I think that's been one of the hardest lessons of my time on the Planning Commission is the things that we got not quite right or things that we would like to see changed. We never get a second chance. Uh, and it's not that we couldn't. It's just that everybody's busy and you get it on the work schedule and it's four years down the road. So my 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 thought is to take one more meeting I, I think we're closer than we think um, i think some um, some language work um, gets me within within reason and and my biggest concern is not necessarily um, the acreage cap I think there are some details other than that to be worked out so my question would be for for jeff and that is when could we see this again how quickly and um, by the same token how quickly would it take somebody else to get a, a uh, a, a project, um, on the books before that.
0: Jeff, yeah, Craig, Planning and Development Services, depending on the list of items that we need to research and get back to, it could take us a month or two months potentially to get bring that full research back to you and, and get that to you. It's our expectation that we would be bringing this back to you as soon as we can for your consideration and, and review on that item. So. Uh, It just depends on the on the list and the amount of research that we have to put in to get to the answers. The question is has given us to me. The questions the Commission has given us this evening.
1: Sinclair chair Commissioner Willie did you have a follow up or any other comments to offer on that.
8: Planning Commissioner, I, I am comfortable to take another month, I'd rather take that than two months, but I, because I, I, I do see the urgency of, of getting some regulations and standards in place, but also just kind of building on the momentum of our discussion and I don't, I don't want to see it drag out, I'd like to see us move forward, but I, I, I think that it is well worth the extra month's time.
1: Commissioner Willie, other uh, commissioners have uh, an opinion on that particular idea? Commissioner Thomas. Uh,
27: Commissioner Charlie Thomas. So what would we have to do to have a moratorium until we have these regulations? What would it take to say we are going to have a moratorium rather than have a company come in, apply, and we're stuck with the regulations that we have now. What would that take?
0: Jeff, Craig Planning and Development Services. That would require the Board of County Commissioners to move and adopt for a moratorium on an item.
1: luke sinclair chair commissioner thomas does that answer your question or do you have a follow-up
27: commissioner charlie thomas that does answer my question i would i would like to see the county commissioners then at their meeting propose the moratorium if that's what we would suggest to them and have that done before we run into issues with companies that apply uh, to build solar
1: panels. Luke Sinclair, Chair. Um, Jeff, I guess a question for that. Uh, The moratoriums that the county has, uh, has done before, have those been sort of as applications have reached them? I mean, is this something that would even be on the county commission's radar?
0: Uh, Jeff Craig, planning and development services. Oh, also, maybe Tanya will have a little bit more insight and, and detail to that one. But from what I remember about the wind farm applications and that process, I think there was an application in process from what I remember. I may, I may have my timeline slightly muddled from many years back. And uh, maybe Tanya has that detail uh, more readily available. Um, Tanya Voigt,
25: zoning director, um, I believe that be- board of county commissioners would want to see that as a majority request from the planning commission um, i think they would want to know that there's a lot of the planning commission members thinking along those same lines and providing that guidance to the board of county commissioners and then we as staff would be able to take that directly to the board of county commissioners um, and and make that request to them um, so that would be um you know drafting resolution having the conversation with the board of county commissioners and just uh, seeing what direction
12: to go. Mr. Chairman, could we speak to this just very quickly?
1: Luke Sinclair, Chair, uh, Mr. Peterson. Um, yeah, you can take a couple. Thank of minutes. you. Please I appreciate keep that. Keep it short.
12: Commissioners, we 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 have uh, we've entered into uh, this dialogue and working with your staff, and it's it's been productive. We each time we've talked to your staff, we've made progress finding common ground, and we would respectfully ask that we not move down the road of a moratorium. It sends a chilling effect to the financial communities, to other companies we're trying to work with to bring a great project to eastern Kansas and, and Douglas County. If we have to take another month or two months to close the gap, I, I will say, you. and I, one other quick point, please do not interpret it as presumptuous that we are out tying some ground up. You have to know that you have some partners before you start spending the effort to work with staff and build a good set of regulations. There's key issues here that are set forth the regulations we adopt that we understand we would have to prove in a special conditional use permit process impact on wildlife, cultural, historical, archeological features, crucial wildlife habitats, water quality and soil erosion, We've heard tonight about further evaluation of soil conditions. Give us two months as an applicant, potential applicant, to work forward uh, with your staff and bring you back a draft that'll close the gap and find the common ground. And we will commit on our behalf. We're not going to try to race to the courthouse and file an application under the utility uh, regulations that are in the county. That's not good faith. That's not what we're here to do. We're here to find a path that is acceptable to all. So, uh, if it takes more time, we're here to uh, try to be your partners and create a good document. We'd ask we do it in the form of a continuance, not a moratorium. That sends all sorts of implications that I'm not sure it would be intended by the county. Thank you, Mr.
1: Peterson. Luke Sinclair, Chair, Commissioner Willie.
8: I agree with Mr. Peterson. I think it is unnecessarily chilling to future development. I think it might actually be slower than us just finishing our regulations. Uh, and I think we're so much further along with this than than the county was when we first uh, came up with with uh, with a wind, uh, with the thought of, of, of a wind farm. Um, so I, I really think we can make this happen in the next couple of months. And I don't think, even though we we, we also don't have, uh, control over what the county Commission would like to do with it but I, I think that this process is working.
15: Luke
1: Sinclair Chair, Thank you Commissioner Willie. Uh, Commissioner Thomas, I think it was a, a good thought but I would I would tend to agree with um, with those comments too. I, I, I think we can and should um, get this done in you know 60 or 30 or 60 days or whatever it is next time we see it and just get it moving. Do any other commissioners have comments or is there anyone willing to make a motion I, I i feel like we're getting to a point where we might be able to do that commissioner uh, carpenter
10: jim carpenter planning commission i just have a question for jeff or becky as far as notice requirements for putting us on a future agenda are we able to do it in 30 days or are we stuck with 60 days
0: jeff crick planning development services director Did, i was just checking that item out there we can get this on the agenda to have come back at your september meeting the legal publication is is available to us on that item there so we we would be able to turn around excuse me we'd be able to get it on there on your next meeting available as long as we can get the questions and the research turned around quickly <laughs>
10: And, and just to follow up, um, is this something that we can actually possibly schedule over both nights so that we could have one night to really discuss it and the second night to actually vote on the text amendment, fine tuning tweaks at that time, instead of having to go out another meeting after that? <sighs>
0: jeff Planning development services you can have an item that runs across multiple nights we can try to make sure we get that information uh, adjusted between the two nights it can be a little difficult but we can definitely have an item run across monday and a wednesday evening
10: jim carpenter planning Commission. i think we are getting narrowing in on on what we would be able to agree to on forwarding to the county commission i just don't want to try to have it all in one night and come up oh wait what about this and then have to change some of the language and put it off again so if we could do that at our next you know monday wednesday meeting i think that would
13: be helpful to everybody
10: just to keep this moving because we don't want it to turn into parking which we've never come back to for as long as i've been on the commission (laughs)
1: Thank you, Commissioner Carpenter, Luke Sinclair Chair. Do do any other commissioners have any comments to make to staff or to each other? Or do we have any motions? Commissioner Ashworth.
3: Uh, National Planning Commission just to say that um, in the interest of having the uh, Commission um, really behind a set of regulations I can certainly get behind um, a month delay to make sure everybody's comfortable and have a set that everybody is everybody is comfortable with so I I can go for a delay
1: thank you vice chair Luke Sinclair chair Commissioner
5: Rexroad. Thank you, Commissioner Rexroad. I'd echo what uh, Commissioner Ashworth just said. And I'd make a motion um, that we defer to the September meeting this item, asking staff to go back with the comments and questions they've heard tonight and return with an updated draft um, of this text a minute for uh, consideration approval.
1: Luke Sinclair, Chair. Uh, Thank you, Commissioner Rexroad. We have a, a motion to defer till September is there a second Commissioner Willie looks like she's seconding it by a hand motion does uh, are there any other comments or questions before we have a vote I'm not seeing any um so Jeff would you be able to read the roll
0: Jeff Craig planning and development services commissioner Ashworth yes commissioner Butler Yes, Commissioner Carpenter. Yes, Commissioner Payton. Yes, Commissioner Rexford. Yes, Commissioner Shanklin. Yes, Commissioner Sinclair. Yes, Commissioner Thomas. Yes, Commissioner Willie. Yes, motion passes nine to zero.
1: Thank you for your time tonight. Very well. Thank you, Luke Sinclair, Chair. Thank you, um, everybody who commented, um, and those who have uh, spent time on this. Um, we'll uh, we'll discuss it later. Um, so that brings us to the end of our regular agenda, and we um, the next is a study session. We have uh, an MPO um, presentation, I think, from um, some long suffering. Uh, folks, Jessica Mortinger and maybe Ashley Breyers. I don't know if she's still on. Um, I guess, you know, does anybody do any commissioners need to have a a quick break before we before we launch into this? Not, no, we're good to go. Okay, then I guess uh, I guess then Jessica, should I turn it over to you?
24: Yeah. Yes, thank you. Jessica Mortinger, Transportation Planning Manager with the Lawrence Douglas County Metropolitan Planning Organization. And I have uh, been on the list for a while, I think, you know, to talk at a mid-month and you haven't had those. So we um, put together a brief presentation for you. I'll try not to go into too much detail, but I also want you to be able to ask me any questions that you might have about any of our process. I know there's some new commissioners since the last time we've done this. Um before, and I have a little bit of new content that might be uh, new to some of you.
18: Maybe. Okay.
24: So tonight I'm going to talk a little bit about the MPO and tell you about the work that we do, explain our 2021 work plan and the remaining items we have left on the calendar uh, slated for work this year, um, and then share with you a little bit of the data and process that we both do and are doing more of in regards to environmental justice, so low to moderate income and minority populations and other transportation disadvantaged populations in our community. Um, the MPO is a federally funded agency. We do regional transportation planning. Um, and the as far as the feds are concerned, they really see it as a three C's process. So it's comprehensive, it's cooperative, and it's continuous. Um, there's Just as soon as we get one decision made or one planning process done, we move, we continue to move on. The region changes over time and transportation needs and the demands on the existing system change. Um, And so it's an ongoing process and that involves solicitation and conversations with public residents, um, travelers, and users of our transportation systems, um, all of our stakeholder partners um, at our local jurisdictions and our state and federal partners, um, as well as um, the makeup of our own um, committees and structures that lead us through um, this transportation process. Um, We uh, have a planning area that encompasses all of Douglas County, and so um, we Uh, like you, in that sense, do work um, in Lawrence and Douglas County. We also do work in Lecompton, Eudora and Baldwin City. And so we'll talk a little bit about that um, and the benefit to those communities. Um, The MPO is its own separate legal entity. So we are not the city. We are not the county. We are made up of primarily elected officials on our MPO policy board. Um, We have two representatives from Planning Commission. As you may know, you recently appointed them. We have two city commissioners from the city of Lawrence, a Douglas County commissioner, a liaison and a position representative from the Kansas Department of Transportation and um, a rotating seat from Baldwin City, LeCompton or Eudora. um, And they rotate on a three-year basis. All of the work before it goes to our MPO policy board goes to our technical advisory committee um, or one of our other uh, advisory boards like the regional transit advisory committee before it ever comes to the MPO policy board. Those groups are made up of staff um, our staff partners at all of the agencies that we work with. So transit, um, city municipal services and operations, county administrator, uh, county public works um, and all in the, the other city representation. We also then um, have some other local advisory boards and committees that we work with. So we work with local groups um, in the city advisory structure. Sometimes we also have like the MPO um, bicycle advisory committee. Um, and so we staff, um, as you mentioned earlier, Ashley Breyers, who was unable to make it uh, this, this long this evening, and I'm, I'll take over the presentation, but she and I are the two full-time staff members for the MPO, and we staff all of these committees and the work that we're going to discuss tonight in partnership um, with, our, with
3: our partners.
24: Um, we have a lot of required documents that we're required to produce to maintain um, our consistent flow of federal funding into the region and to maintain federal compliance. Uh, the work program we're going to talk a little bit in a minute. Um, the one you're maybe most familiar with is our Metropolitan transit transportation plan called transportation 2040 it is officially the transportation <laughs> chapter of plan 2040 and that's good and we keep that consistent so there's not two separate uh, adopted plans in the region um, out of the long-range plan we have a transportation improvement program and then a bunch of other plans that are federally required around public participation title six and limited english proficiency and we'll talk a little bit about more of those in detail so this every year we write a work plan that gets adopted by the policy board and also accepted by KDOT and the feds to tell to detail the work we're going to do with our grant funding. The MPO work um, gets an annual budget that's an 80% grant and requires a 20% match to fund um, the work that uh, we do. Um, For the rest of this year, some of the things you might hear in the community we are working on, we have a financial interest um, in the transit route redesign that is happening right now with our partners, Lawrence Transit and KU on Wheels. We are embarking on a journey to update the 2016 Regional Pedestrian Plan with a Lawrence Pedestrian Plan and then a Eudora Baldwin City Lecompton Pedestrian Plan. Um, We are embarking with the Technical Advisory Committee on some transportation and land use best practices research um, we have slated an update both to the public participation plan prior to the transportation 2040 work that will begin next year update um, and an update we are underway with right now to the mpo federal highways roadway functional classification map and that's just a federally required map process it's separate than major thoroughfares um, which uh, you tie to your land development code for street classifications um, but we'll be going through that process and that's pretty typical for us to do before we go into to a long range transportation plan update. We are also in the works in partnership with KDOT to bring a new staff member on board. Um, and we anticipate that um, is included in the proposed city uh, 2022 budget, but it would be a mobility planner to help with the coordination of transportation services um, in our community. So thinking about all of the transit providers from Burton Nash, Cottonwood, Independence, Inc., um, Senior Resource Center and then our two larger fixed route providers um, working to get people greater access to um, information and even intercounty rides and other things in terms of coordination. So we're excited about the possibilities that a new mobility planner will bring. Um, The one that I mentioned also earlier that you're probably most familiar with, Transportation 2040, every five years, um, we are required to adopt uh, a new transportation plan, and it has to have a 20-year forecast range. Um, It's also unique um, in the sense that it's one of the planning documents we put together that must be fiscally constrained. So we must make fiscal projections about the reasonable accommodation of resources we would anticipate. To have over that 20 year period um, to be able to slot projects um, in bands that fit within um, that projected revenue. Um, and so, oftentimes, you know, we're looking in the, we have a little more accuracy in the near term. Um, and in the out years, um, we are making some of our best guesses because we will update the plan um, before we get to those years. Um, this involves. Uh, some travel demand modeling and it ties pretty heavily into the land use plan because there's a lot of assumptions that are made in the projections we make about level of service for transportation on our roadway networks related to density and land use um, and the projections that get fed into the model to help tell the story about what transportation network and elements need to be planned for in the in the long in the long range long-range plan out of that plan, then, also, we manage on a quarterly amendment process. Um, we update this every two years. This is a transportation improvement program. You can think of it a little bit like a transportation CIP, a Capital Improvement Program. Um, it's a four-year listing of projects, um, and it basically takes all of the elements. Projects must be in the transportation plan, so T2040, um, to pull them out of that plan to actually program them for funding. So um, this plan also has a financial component and must be fiscally constrained. You can't put projects in here for implementation that don't have allocated funding. Um, And without a project being in this project, you're unable to get federal funding for it. So from federal highway administration or federal transit administration, this is a very technical document. Oftentimes, um, since we're an MPO that does not receive our own federal funding, we are relying on the fiscal processes that all the local and state governments um, to program funding. Um, And then as they do that, if it has a federal component or it's regionally significant, those projects get programmed into this document that tells the story about how the plan is being implemented. So, we can't do this process without consulting the public and having an open uh, process to do that. We have, for all of our federally required documents and for our planning processes, we have a public participation plan that outlines the process and methods we intend to use. to get from the beginning inception and community vision and plans, all the way to uh, plan adoption. We have a Title VI uh, program manual, which tells us and helps us comply with the federal regulations around ensuring that regardless of race, color, or or national origin, no one is excluded or denied benefit or is otherwise discriminated against in the process or in the impact of projects. Um, from MPO activities. Um, And then we also have a limited English proficiency plan. And while our region does not meet the threshold requirements, which requires automatic translation in any one language um, for language uh, proficiency, We do want to do our best to eliminate barriers people may face in accessing the planning process in regards to their English proficiency. And this has resulted in us in working with partners in translating surveys, um, both for the most recent transit route redesign and some safe routes to school planning into Spanish um, for the engagement work that we have done uh, with populations for both of those plans. Once we get all of those federally required plans done in our process, we really have some flexibility in determining with our technical advisory committee which plans and projects are most relevant to the region in attempting to do some additional mode-specific planning. Um, and so, I'm just going to present some of those plans to you uh, to just at a, high, a really high level. I think if there's any interest in any of these, we can come back at another time and talk in more detail about the process or the result and recommendations that any of these plans and plans have. We have both a city of Lawrence and a countywide bikeway plan that really focuses on bikeways that are of high comfort and value based on deciding design types, based on roadway speed and volume, and providing tools for local governments to make those decisions per the planning documents. Um, This is the 20 on the right here. You see the regional pedestrian plan. Uh, This was completed in 2016. This is the one we're working on updating um, this fall. Um, We are beginning that process. We have just recently completed um, over the last few years and adopted in 2020 safe routes to school plans for Lawrence, Baldwin City, and Eudora, and all of the communities are working on implementing these plans with built environment improvements and other strategies both in and out of the school to make uh, the environment to be able to walk and bike uh, more friendly for children accessing their school sites. We have been involved over time in a lot of the transit planning that has happened with our transit partners. So, right now, you see at the bottom the mention of our transit route redesign project that we're in partnership with, that they're doing, that Lawrence Transit's doing in tandem with their multimodal transfer facility project. Um, we've participated previously in the comprehensive operations analysis for transit in a coordinated public transit human services transportation plan, which is about more than just fixed route transit or the bus the the big buses, you might see on the road, but also a lot of the paratransit and human services transportation that is offered in our region. Um, And then we've also uh, worked on other projects like fixed route transit and pedestrian accessibility. Um, And so that we we work in partnership with our transit provider in our region. Um, this is my last page of other plans and studies, and I'll guarantee you there's thousands of pages of reading um, in some of this, but we just recently completed an update to the Intelligent Transportation System Strategic Deployment and Maintenance Plan, which um, is very technical, but at a very high level and includes the technology improvements that make transportation work. So thinking about signal coordination and timing, tra- uh, traveler information, whether that be for cars um, or transit vehicles, thinking about what's the applications for the future in terms of user information on a smartphone for being able to travel and um, throughout our region. We have some other uh, studies that we've done over time as part of competitive processes where we got additional funding, funding to bring in consultants like our commuter park and ride study and our bike share study. Okay. Okay would it be better would you like me to pause at this point to ask questions about that before i talk a little bit about our data processes
1: uh luke sinclair chair i mean do any commissioners have any questions right now we could i suppose pause um i mean jessica would you have any problem with going back to some of this stuff at the end if we think of questions later on
24: no jessica mortinger no that's no problem we can okay. go back i just wanted to make sure because i'm i rushed through a lot of information for you
1: no i think you can just plug on it's good okay. All right.
24: right so one of the required processes that we do in both our long-range transportation plan transportation 2040 and in our transportation improvement program is an evaluation of environmental justice um, environmental justice is a jargony kind of federal word that's really about fair treatment and meaningful involvement of people, regardless of race, race, ethnicity, income, or national origin or education, um, with respect to uh, development of our plans and processes. What I'm showing you on the map at right is the two groups that make up the transportation. Um, these are these environmental justice areas, because you're either, you meet the threshold or you don't, in terms of using census data to determine that. The in gray, you see the low to moderate um, income block groups in our community. And in the red cross hatch, you see the 99% confidence interval for minority block groups. So these are the areas, both of those together, the gray and the red, that make up the environmental justice areas in our community. We are doing work to be able to track both through our performance measures in our in transportation 2040, which is a performance-based plan, um, the reality of transportation uh, measures both in and out, like as in the community as a whole and also in our environmental justice zones. Um, we are, we do, um, and uh, here's this, here defines a little bit more in detail if you want to check this out. Uh, we define um, in our work, in our data analysis of evaluating projects, both in the planning process, so in transportation 2040, and then in the implementation to explore the reality of how the distribution of projects um, and the impacts we believe projects are having on these populations in our community. So here's low to moderate income households. Um, we use this This definition comes from um, also the community development block grant um, funding definition where areas that are eligible within this low to moderate income households are eligible for those CDBG funds also. Um, And so we share this data and this uh, standard uh, with them to, to use that. Um, the minority data is one that we have set um, using our five-year estimates to depict where we are in terms of populations that are over that are over the confidence interval for the range of values that's likely to encompass those values um, And so we feel pretty confident about this I think in the future we could we have we have talked a little bit with um, with Jeff and others about you know Deciding we've set this boundary um, in terms of, you know, depending on what we anticipate happening. I'm going to flip back real quick to this map because we anticipate probably the largest change. You know, this is a these are kind of one point in time data sets and analysis when we do this work in our planning process. Um, And the reality is in some of the outer areas, we have quite large block groups where we might anticipate with the next census that we will see some shift in what we consider environmental justice populations um, throughout our community. So, that's one thing we have to watch um, in terms of making, you know, in our performance-based planning is, um, in sometimes the metrics are moving more based on the changes in the census demographics um, than maybe some of the policy um, and project uh, implementation that's happening throughout our region. So, we just want to share this with you. That analysis is in greater detail. It's in our documents. It might be something that you're interested in checking out. We are also... um, evaluating and beginning to do some additional um, metrics and analysis around transportation disadvantaged populations. Um, There's some national literature around census Uh, defined populations that we believe have transportation vulnerabilities. Um, And some of those populations, um, when they're in greater density in our community within these block groups, uh, we're working to evaluate what that means in terms of disparity for things like sidewalk network or in access to healthy food, access to bus stops, um, and that sort of thing. And so here in this map at right, you see in the most darkest red score, the most intense areas of populations of demographics that we believe represent populations that traditionally have transportation vulnerability, um, follow all the way on the scale down um, to light red, yellow, green to blue, which we believe is the lowest transportation vulnerabilities within our community that is based on these criteria areas from U.S. uh, census data uh, information. And you can see here the Lawrence average for all of those. And then the greater intensity of the population within those groups, we have given it a higher score to really show where there's intensity. We are beginning to use this um, and we're, we're, beginning to use this um, one with the city of Lawrence in the process that we just worked to start to begin facilitating around um, sidewalk improvement programs. So where the sidewalk or the city is enforcing code compliance with sidewalk condition. Um, we, you will also probably see some of this if you follow our pedestrian planning work around uh, the beginning exploration of uh, exploring pedestrian networks, Um, and where we believe there may or may not be disparities in access based on the geographic block group that you live in. And so hoping to understand if we can find if there are uh, those disparities, how we can do planning work around uh, projects for both gap infill and community expectations for equity and sidewalk network distribution. So I think probably with some of the recent conversations I've heard you've had this is maybe going to be of interest to you to follow um, in that process we have put together i would point out at the bottom of both of these pages that were included in your agenda packet there's a link it goes both to a web page and a handout that describes all of this, um, these these analyses um, in some greater detail. Um, tries to really simplify it and make it publicly understandable. It breaks down some um, pretty challenging, maybe some concepts, and into something a little simpler as we work through this. But we are beginning to use these to tell the story in our community about um, who who the transportation decisions um, that are being made are impacting and how those impacts are playing into people's access and mobility and inevitably health and quality of life in our community. So we, um, we are beginning to do this work and I wanted to bring it to your attention. Um, so if you hear it in the conversation, um, you can kind of see where, where we are starting and where we intend to, to go with this. That's what I have for you this evening, I know that was really quick and I threw a lot of information at you after our already long conversation but I'd be happy to entertain any questions you may have now. um, Or in the future about any of the work we do or if you're interested in additional presentations about any of the specific planning products that we have, we can come back and do that again too.
1: Thank you so much Jessica Luke Sinclair chair. Do, uh, is there anybody that has any questions for Jessica tonight? Commissioner Rexroad.
5: Thank you, Commissioner Rexroad. Thanks for a great presentation. Um, If you said it, and I missed it, I apologize. um, Did you define um, how how we define minority households? What's the makeup of a minority household?
24: Yeah, so that's a US um, census definition. And those are self-selected on the on the census survey. Jeff, do you know specifically how they define those in relation to the nation?
0: Jeff Craig, Planning and Development Services, it will vary a little bit across regions and communities. And so it'll it'll fluctuate depending upon where you're at and, and what the respondent rate is in the community. But typically it's the the kind of the bellwether measurement is you just look across the space, the, the matrix, and then kind of associate, you know, the numbers across. But it's um, it all just depends on the community and what level of geography that you're looking at to kind of come up with what that mm-hmm. falls into.
15: Thank you.
1: Commissioner Ashworth. I think you're muted, Commissioner Ashworth.
3: Yeah, that's what happens after 930 in <laughs> my world. Um, thank you, Jessica. Um, I'm keenly interested if you would mind, wouldn't mind touching again on the sidewalk, uh, I think you've got sidewalk distribution and the sidewalk improvement timeline. Um, how does that, what's the timeline on using this data? for sidewalk improvements and does the sidewalk improvement mean the fact that the sidewalk exists or also the sidewalk quality are we talking about
24: yeah so jessica mortinger transportation planning manager there's two issues there the first one sidewalk improvement program has been the cities right now they're in year three of implementing uh, enforcement of sidewalk condition Um, after inspection. Um, And the most recent process, so we used, we worked with the Multimodal Transportation Commission and uh, Municipal Services and Operations staff to build a model that selected the area, the geographical area that was included uh, to be inspected um, and to work on compliance uh, with those defects for year three so this this is that was already being used mm-hmm. um the first two years of the program mso chose geographical areas in the community that were just bounded solely by a border they drew on a map that they thought was a representative area of a, like a 10-year program as they broke it into areas and um, as they got m- more comfortable with implementing that program we recognized that uh, we um had heard, I think it's part of the community conversation also, the interest in doing that work where there was the highest benefit. So we worked with Multimodal Transportation Commission and and MSO staff to build a model that projected uh, pedestrian demand across our community based on a series of destinations that were determined to be priority destinations. Um, And then we used that transportation disadvantaged block group layer as a way to wait, um, at a 25% level, in addition to, uh, that demand, each segment then had a demand that was summed up from a series of processes that the model ran, um, to, to choose the year three, uh, priorities. And they're currently in that process. Um, and so that's an evolution. So we are already using that. Um, and that's, that's one thing. So that's for sidewalk existing sidewalk condition. Um, we are, in the pedestrian planning process, um, recognizing that in terms of gap for infill of sidewalk network, we have already set the community priority in the MMTC has uh, the Multimodal Transportation Commission, when they adopted their um, non-motorized prioritization policy, it prioritizes, that's the bike ped funding, and that's how that get. That's how all the sidewalk gap projects um, get prioritized for funding, the ones that are happening with city resources. Um, and in that process, uh, all the projects that are uh, on both sides of an arterial, arterial or collector street or are along uh, safe routes to schools um, on at least one side to make a continuous segment are prioritized in that policy. The next bit of that, um, we have recognized there's three more elements we've heard as part of community conversations that we believe need to be evaluated to identify for gap infill. And that is access to transit, access to parks, and access to healthy food destinations. But we really wanna put an equity lens on that because I think one of the things that the previous conversations hasn't recognized when we were just looking at arterials collectors and safe routes to schools is there are many geographical areas in our community that depending on when they were developed and what the sidewalk requirements were at the time of their development, there are larger neighborhoods where there is not necessarily a sidewalk access, which impacts access to these other opportunities in our community, which impacts people's access to mobility. And so um, we want to have that conversation. And that's where we envision in this process, we're going to build a process where we can evaluate each block group um, and the amount of linear uh, mile of roadway compared to density, compared to sidewalk, um, to start to understand not only on a network level um, but also within these geographical areas if there is a standout kind of in that data with an equity lens about where we might need to target additional gap infill to make inroads around mobility.
3: Wow, um, planning commission, ashore, that sounds like a lot of fun with GIS maps. <laughs> some intense work. So um, I'm excited to see some of that come to fruition. To see this, um, hopefully, someday in the paper where the priorities are going to be and the reasons for that priority. That's that's great.
1: and clear chair. Other questions for Jessica? Commissioner
10: Carpenter first thanks for putting my sidewalk in year three it's been a joy Um, but but second just back to Commissioner Ashworth what you just been talking about is this model for filling gaps going to be fluid or are you going to be able to project out for a certain number of years in the future where these particular gaps will be filled. I'm just asking because that could be helpful with some of our variance requests that we get.
24: I'm just the more transportation planning manager. I'm not yet sure what that's going to look like in terms of what the output is, if that will just be a one-time identification of within the existing network um, looking at you know where we where those gaps would be, but I do think, and we are having conversations also internally, and we will follow your conversations. I think because I do think there probably needs to be some additional both community conversation about the expectation of sidewalks. Um, it's probably unrealistic to imagine with uh, with the financial climate um, to envision. Anytime any time in the near term, having sidewalks on both sides of the street across our entire community. Um, and even in transportation best practices, there is such a thing as streetwalks, um, which is basically shared street environments where it's appropriate based on um, some of the traffic operating conditions of the roadway that it's appropriate to share some share spaces when the speed or volume is low enough, uh, with people walking. And so I think that, um, that's a conversation we proposed in terms of our street walks and appropriate, uh, um, infrastructure type. Um, we asked parents that as part of a safe routes work that we did. Um, we didn't get a lot of traction in terms of street walks for students specifically. In the cases where we gave um, parents at schools an option between two types of infrastructure, um, a street walk versus a sidewalk on a busier road. Um, but I do think you know it was mixed. I think in one case they said yes, and in the other case they said no, um, and it really was conditional on on the environment. I think if they neighborhood and land uses around those, those locations in specific. But I think those are things we're going to have to explore as part of the pedestrian plan and the Lawrence uh, pedestrian plan steering committee can help us, hopefully help us guide that conversation. Um, because in addition to that conversation comes accessibility. And um, we know that um, I, I, we talked to Evan Corinta who's the city ADA coordinator and um, you know, They have slated a 2023 um, ADA transition plan for the public right away. And so while we are not going to be able to do all of that work in the pedestrian plan, we recognize that's going to be a very important component of uh, the conversation about mobility for many of the uh, residents in our community.
4: Thank you.
1: Luke Sinclair, Chair, Um, if I could just kind of piggyback on that, Jessica, can you... I guess just sort of distill for us the importance of safe routes to school and what constitutes like a safe route to school, because some of the variance requests we've had have been, I think, uh on a safe route to school or in that area, and we've had to sort of wrestle with those types of um issues.
23: Okay.
24: Yeah, Jessica Morton, your transportation planning manager. So in in the Safe Routes to School Plans, we recognize that we took um, anonymized student data from our schools and looked within each boundary for each school at the density of where students were distributed across that school boundary. Recognizing that, again, there's limited resources both for gap infill, but also crossing improvements and other built environment constraints that, um, that we just talked about students live on every street in our community. um, And and some of them are outside of boundaries, but looking within those boundaries, we looked at the density and we tried to establish what we basically call, what we labeled as the safe routes to school routes. And as part of that program, that was, primarily for prioritizing where we should make built environment improvements to those routes to make sure to ensure there's a continuous route, a sidewalk along, you know, one side of the street or another. In some cases, um, the priority is set for arterials and collectors that should be on both sides and on for local streets that follow along safe routes. It can, be on one, it, sh- it can be on one side only as long as that's a continuous route. So we wouldn't want something that flips back and forth on each side of the street requiring unnecessary crossings for a trip to school and that really helps us direct the resources that we're looking at based on that density map to the the places where the highest number of students are going to funnel in as they're making that trip into school and so for each school um, in elementary and middle schools we established basically a set of routes for that school Um, and and in the plan there are three different sets of maps and so those routes are identified on our infrastructure maps um, as a way to then identify projects and a project listing of where there are projects that we believe should be constructed as part of the Safe Routes to School plans. And we're, and we're making progress on those. We have over time, there was ones when we adopted the plan, they're, they're in progress. Things change, right? So we recognize that those routes, when there's boundary changes or there's other changes maybe in between us planning to update that plan every five years that we might need to go back and adjust those routes. We just did that with the Kennedy closing. We made an amendment to the safe routes to school plan in relation to those routes. Again, based on the student densities where we would anticipate the largest number of students funneling in um, and reasonable, you know, some reasonable within those reasonable walk sheds. We looked at walk sheds also in terms of what's a half mile, what's a mile, what's a mile and a half or greater in terms of, you know, Obviously, if there's a lot more density in the inner rings, that justified more um, likelihood to walk in some of that um, in some of that work. Um, and then the other th- the other part of that, I think, is because students still live on every street in our community. We have both two other sets of um, maps, um, an encouragement maps that we did in the plan, where on those we pu- we worked with public health. Um, to uh, publish maps that show the existing sidewalk network for every school and where there are marked crossings and if there's a crossing guard or other relevant information, um, and those are listed on their Be Active, Safe Routes website. Um, and that in some cases, those routes that we talked about that are on the infrastructure maps are also shown on the encouragement maps because they exist. However, where there are locations where there were not sidewalk available on both on either even one side of the street or it's a future project, but it's not yet um, slated for construction, you know, like committed for funding, we didn't identify those as routes because we have to be really careful about where we're encouraging kids to walk and bike based on where there's available sidewalk network. Um, And then we also worked a little bit on developing some preliminary standardized circulation maps about um, something we've seen in the news and we know is an issue at the beginning of every school year um, is traffic circulation around our schools. um, people taking their children to school are a large um, uh, part of the congestion in our neighborhoods around schools. And so um, we had realized in our Safe Routes to School process that there wasn't really consistent standardization of some of that in terms of how we share them for how the parents are as part of the we community, the Safe Routes to School working group was sharing information about that. So that's, maybe that answers a little bit of your questions. You might have a follow-up about um, how we viewed that in the process, but that's kind of how we framed it
1: luke sinclair chair i don't have a follow-up that was fantastic thank you other commissioners no questions for jessica it doesn't look like it it's late okay last call
0: Mr. Chair, if I may, just a a comment from the room here. I think you're getting to see like a very, barely scratching the surface of all the work that Ashley and Jessica put into everything that is going on transportation related. So, I mean, this is really a high level 101. We could go (laughs) quite detailed into the weed. There's a lot of great information they produce one thing I would say is to keep in mind is that on the on the MPO's website, you can find all of the documentation, the maps, the history. So if you ever have questions, it is all online, it is all available, and you can find all kinds of maps. But like I said, this is just a very high level look, just barely scratching the surface of all the good work that they put in.
1: Luke Sinclair Chair. Thanks, Jeff. Um, yeah, and I think that's pretty apparent. I, I feel like maybe the late hour has <laughs> Uh, cut short some of the discussion, but Jessica, thank you for staying on so late. Um, Sorry, I went so late. And uh, hopefully people will just reach out to you if they have questions directly.
24: Um, Yeah, I would encourage them to. We're available by phone and email. Um, And this is the work we do all the time. So we're always happy to engage in conversations about um, anything that might be relevant to the work you're doing or even personal interests that you have about what's happening in our community in regards to transportation.
1: Excellent, thank you so much. Oh, uh, Luke Sinclair, I, Chair. Just,
3: Mr. Ashworth. Mr. Ashworth, I just wanted to say thank you. It's, it's, it's amazing to me every time I go on um, city county websites for planning, the wealth of information that is there. And this is just great to have a reminder that we have so much information at our fingertips um, and we can barely scratch the surface of what is there. So thank you all.
1: Luke Sinclair, Chair, uh, agreed. I think then that brings us um to a miscellaneous new or old business. And I, I don't have any listed. I don't see any listed in the agenda. Is there anything um Jeff to add now?
0: Jeff Craig Planning and Development Services, we have no other items to add this evening.
1: Okay. Uh then I guess uh I never remember. Do we adjourn or <laughs> recess on Monday nights?
0: Jeff Craig, Planning and Development Services. We need a motion to recess to go into your Wednesday meeting.
1: Okay. Does anyone want to make such a motion?
3: Chair Ashworth, Planning Commission. I move we recess um, until Wednesday
1: evening. Thank you, Commissioner Ashworth. Luke Sinclair, Chair. Do we have a second? Everyone wants to stay on. Commissioner Willie, I think, uh, raised her hand. A second. Uh, can Jeff? Can you read the roll?
0: thirdly jeff crick Planning development services commissioner ashworth
9: yes Yes.
0: commissioner butler yes commissioner carpenter yes commissioner payton yes commissioner rexford yes commissioner shanklin yes commissioner sinclair yes mr thomas yes commissioner willie
1: yes motion passes nine to zero Excellent. Thank you everyone for your hard work and we'll see you next time.